0: Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.
1: Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, Keely. Hey, Chris.
0: Welcome to Hurt It on the Sidelines. Hurt It. Hurt It on the sideline with Shotgun Spratling. Spratling.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast with Shotgun Spratling, where we discuss what's going on at USC, but also try to pull back the curtain to give you guys an insider's perspective for the people around the USC athletic programs. The Hurt It on the Sidelines podcast is part of the Style podcast family. On today's episode, I'm bringing in my fellow helium boy, Chris Trevino, to pick his brain on the Pac-12 championship game, Caleb Williams' Heisman push, and we've got to talk about his Ghost Notes game day series he's been doing all season. It's been absolutely terrific. It's worth the price of admission alone on the Peristyle. Become a VIP member to make sure that you are being able to get all of his notes from on game day and getting that behind-the-scenes real look there. And then we're going to be answering your guys' questions with a particular focus on the Pac-12 championship along with some fun Las Vegas-related, Las vegas theme questions that you guys submitted. Without further ado, let's jump right into it. We now welcome in my fellow Helium boy, Chris Trevino, CT. So happy to finally get you back on the Herd It podcast, even though you claimed you would only do Helium Boys podcast with me this year since I moved away, but I was able to trick you into doing this one. A Pac-12 championship game preview, a lot going on right now. We probably shouldn't be doing this because of how much other stuff we have to do before the championship game, but we had to do it for the people.
0: One, you absolutely tricked me because I was completely under the guise that this was a Helium Boys podcast, not heard it on the sideline, but only one person in this world can make me put off other work that I'm behind on and put off packing because I hate being late to packing up all my stuff for the night before, and that's Shackman Spratling, uh, because I will do anything for my fellow Helium Boy, even the even though... You conned me into coming on to a heard on the sideline podcast, but it doesn't really matter because technically I'm on every heard on the sideline podcast because I do your your intro.
1: Yes, you do the intro, and that's the the, the basic difference between a, a helium boys and I heard it on the sidelines. That we have an intro for this one, but this one's going to be a heard on the sideline because we're going to pick Chris's brain about his game day ghost notes, which have been just an incredible additional feature that you guys that are subscribed to the P have been able to get. It's been so much fun reading them and editing them each week just to see what Chris has had and what I can kind of add in and add little pieces to to, to make it even more um, more insightful. And the fact that we got close to 4,000 words for the USC-Notre Dame game, so we're going to break down some of that. But first, we got to talk about the fact that why we USC is still playing this week, why we are still you know rushing to put up content, rushing to get everything out there, because USC has a game on Friday – Thanks a lot, Pac-12, for not having games on Saturday like everyone else in, in the world. But uh, you know, USC is playing Utah in the Pac-12 championship, makes it back to the Pac-12 championship, first time since 2020, um, You know, the first real one in a while. I think it was 2018 that was the last, 2017 was the last time that they were actually in a real Pac-12 championship game. First time going to Las Vegas for USC, and it's the first time that there's no division, so they get to see a familiar foe. What has become... It's not a rivalry, but a really good just back-and-forth battle between these two teams that has basically been, until the last couple of years, It basically been home team wins almost every single time. The last two times that that had switched in 2020-2021, it's restarted. Uh, Rice-Eccles becomes the benefactor. Utah wins 43-42 in the first matchup. But now they're playing on a neutral field Chris what's what's going to be the key when you're playing a team for the second time and playing them on a neutral field how different is it going to be uh, just atmosphere wise and you know how different do you think it will be for USC playing Utah on a neutral site versus at Rice Eccles
0: well obviously at Rice Eccles which you were at shotgun let's not forget that that was your first and maybe your last game ever at Rice Eccles <laughs> and it was a crazy environment you know it was the most fans they've ever had for a game, you know they were honoring their teammates that had fallen, Ty Jordan and Aaron Lowe. You know they had their their mothers there, and they had the special helmets. So it was just a crazy emotional game, crazy level of atmosphere, and that's going to be taken away from Utah in terms of their advantage. And yes, it's going to be you know if we're seeing all the reports on social media, this game is going to be sold out. And but USC is just going to have just as many fans, if not more, than Utah at this game. So It's going to be an electric atmosphere, but it's more even, you know, it's not where it's just all Utah fans. And I think that is definitely going to play into this game. You know, that was an experience to, to witness on the field and be on the field for. And that's something that, you know, USC does not have to really worry about uh, in terms of, you know, facing those, that noise and the motion, you know, across the sideline. I think USC actually has, emotional advantage in this one just because they're getting a chance at payback. And I know, you know, Lincoln Riley has stated, you know, this isn't a revenge game and they made them tone down, you know, quote unquote, Tuly to below revenge tour quotes from <laughs> the, the UCLA game uh, or the post game of UCLA. But, you know, I, it's human nature uh, shotgun, you know, it's somebody beats you, you get to go play them again or compete against them again. Of course, you're thinking about it. You know, how can you not think about it? And so as much as you, you say that in the media, that's what you're supposed to do. That's absolutely what you're supposed to do. You know, don't give them any extra motivation. Don't put it out there for locker room bulletin board material. You know, keep that in-house. You know, I would not abs- I would absolutely not be shocked if behind closed doors and in the locker room, Lincoln Riley was hitting on the fact that this is a payback game. This is a revenge game, contrary to what they're saying in the media. So I think USC does have that emotional advantage. Now, you have to be careful with that. You can't be too emotional going to this game, but I still think they have that emotional edge, and I think that gives them an inherent advantage, uh, you know, despite everything else.
1: I I think it's been really interesting that uh, USC's really kept their emotions in check throughout the season um, when there has been this revenge tour, when there has been the rivalry games, you know, a lot of different factors that could play into, hey, you want to hype up a game, but they have been pretty even keel, at least leading up to games. Now, afterwards, a couple there's been, and not even necessarily afterwards, it hasn't been like you know there haven't been an emotional outburst, but there has been you know some some snippets, some uh, some snarky comments and stuff. Uh, whether it be the Brett and Elon teddy bears or whatever it may be, they've been pretty even killed this season. So I don't think that, that that's going to be something they'll get overworked up to. And I think when you see the team has been so flatline, has been so even killed throughout the season, that goes to the coaching staff. You know, they are putting them in the right place, you know, to keep them on that tone. And, you are know, reading the reading the room basically with the players and saying, hey, you know, we can't do this, we can't do that, and saying knowing when to say that versus saying it all the time, and it just goes in one ear and goes out the other. So you got to give the coaching staff credit for that as well. One of the big things about this game is, you know, what does each team learn from that last matchup? I mean, obviously a dramatic, epic game, 43-42 Utah goes for the two-point conversion and gets it. Cam Rising to Dalton Kincaid was working all night long. And the fact that USC had a chance to maybe knock them out early and couldn't do it. Now, they didn't get help from a couple of uh, referee calls, and that hurt them a little bit there. And that, obviously, you're hoping that you get the best Pac-12 crew in this game. I don't know how much that's actually saying, but you get the best Pac-12 ref crew for this game. So you hope that the refs don't play a part at all. And no one's complaining one way or another after the game and trying to, to blame a loss on that. But looking at it, what do you think each team kind of learned from last week or last game that they played?
0: Well, I think for one, I think most USC fans hope that Alex Bridge and everyone figures out how to stop Dalton Kincaid. I think you you hope that he's been waking up in cold sweats since that game, <laughs> you know, thinking about, man, I really want another chance at Dalton Kincaid. So I would assume that, That's the big thing in terms of, you know, figuring out how to take away what should be their number one weapon. I mean, Utah is banged up. They lost their number one uh, running back, Tavion Thomas, to a turf toe injury he has done for the season. You know, they have a former quarterback playing as their starting running back. So they've got injuries all over the field. But Dalton Kincaid, who is a little bit banged up, you know, he will be the difference maker for this for this offense in terms of making them go down the field. Cam rising is banged up. So I don't know how much of his mobility is going to be a factor. I would still assume some of it, but, you know, he's been wearing that knee brace since that USC win. And, you know, if you figure out a way to, you know, not let Don Kincaid go for 3 million yards and 300 catches, you know, you take away a huge chunk of this offense or a huge confidence boost for them. Cause that's what they was working for them all night long, or especially in that second half. So if you can really let someone else beat you outside of Don Kincaid, I think that's the best thing you can do. We know USC has struggled with tight ends for, for years, shotgun, and that's no different this year as they tried to, you know, get the athletes into this program to try to stop that trend with the, with this, with this defense uh, over the last several years. But, you know, they, they've done a de- they did a decent job of Michael Mayer, uh, you know, didn't kill them but had a nice night, but nothing crazy for for what his talent level is. You know, Dalton Kincaid's night against USC in that first game is something you would expect Michael Mayer to do, not Dalton Kincaid. But I think that's the big thing. And I think USC's defense has learned since that game, and not specifically uh, about that game in general, but, you know, that defense did make some plays early. And then things just started snowballing you know, to steal from one of my favorite football movies of all time, The Replacements, it felt like quicksand for them. And, you know, everything's going well, and then something goes wrong. And, you know, it's the penalty. You know, you get the interception wipe. And then Utah starts building momentum, and then things keep going wrong and wrong, and then Duncan Cade's going off. And then you get another crucial roughing the passer call on what would have been a fourth down, I believe, the one on uh, Nick Figueroa. Mm-hmm. or It would it wipes out a stop for them. You know, it was, it was stop a that they third made.
1: and long, so it would have, it would have forced a punt. Uh, it was an incompletion, so it would have been a, another stop for the defense instead that drive continued. they score later on.
0: Yeah, so just a, a, a stop that you really had to get and couldn't get all night that you did actually get, but then give it right back. So the quicksand, you're just sinking. They, they were sinking all game. And, you know, at the end, Utah was able to get the two point conversion, take that lead. And the confidence I felt like was a little bit shook after that game for the defense. You know, they went through some games where they did not look right. And there was that stretch of games where, you know, we talked about, you know, where's the defense's mojo. And, you know, they dealt with a lot of questions in practice about their confidence and their swagger and how they get that back. And I think they've had to rebuild themselves uh, through that and, you know the last two games. You know while UCLA did put up a bunch of points, you know you get they got four, four turnovers in that game, and they they made the play at the end. And Notre Dame absolutely shut them down, shut down Zach Charbonnet, shut down Notre Dame's running attack. They've done some really good things the last two weeks, and I think their confidence is just at an all time high after you know having some really strong performances against UCLA and Notre Dame. And I think they're sort of peaking at the right moment. So just having gone through that experience of essentially being the reason why, you know, they lost that Utah game, not being able to stop Cameron Rising and Dalton Kincaid. They rebuilt themselves in that confidence and got back to a point where they're playing their best football at, at the moment right now. So I think they're in the best position to go out there and reaffirm or redo what, what, they, what they couldn't get done in Salt Lake City.
1: Yeah, and in that game they had 18 missed tackles. That's the second most they've had the season. The next, the next most, uh, or the most, was against Arizona, which was the next game. They had 20. The last three games, though, they went through that stretch where they missed a lot of tackles. You know, double digit, three or four games in a row. The last three games, they've had 14 missed tackles total, including only three against Notre Dame, according to PFF. Um, so, you know, and that was the big thing that Alex Grinch said after the game is, you know, and after the game and since then and talking about guarding Michael Mayer this week leading up to Dalton Kikade is, hey, when he makes the catch, if we tackle him, you know, make it a five yard game versus a 12, a 15 yard game. And that's how a lot of those because he had over 100 yards after the catch in that game. So he had 16 catches, 16 targets, 234 yards. But even if he has 16 catches, you eliminate all the yards after catch, which I you're not going to do that, but you eliminate that. You know, we had a hundred and what is that, a hundred and and twenty-eight, you know, yards on, on the catch. So 16 catches, 108 yards or 128, that's less than 10 yards of catch. So you feel much more comfortable with that. So that's a big thing, is if they can tackle there. And another thing is, you know, neither team has been the same since that first matchup. You know, I think it showed how hard fought, hard hitting it was that both teams had a bye, and then both teams had a bunch of injuries that maybe didn't even necessarily show up at the time. I mean, the Cam Rising, um, you know, Kincaid left the, the next game, has been banged up since. You know, Taven Thomas didn't play much in that game against USC, so I don't think it's a huge thing that he's not playing against USC. I think it would have been a big boost for them, but I don't think it's a huge difference maker from that first matchup. Whereas USC loses Eric Gentry, they lose Jordan Addison, they lose Mario Williams. You know, there's a number of, of injuries, and some of those are still lingering. Multiple big-time injuries for both teams, and some of them are still lingering. And those could be difference makers in this game. You know, where's Mario Williams and Jordan Addison? Are they fully healthy? You know, Eric Gentry still was not fully healthy last week. The, the second play or, uh, you know, the, his second tackle is three or four plays in. He drops back in coverage. He turns one way and has to turn the other way and go chase after a running back. And it was great to see that he could run and chase after that running back. But the turn was so slow. You know, it just he doesn't have that change of direction that he normally would have. Now he's going to be better than he was last week, I'm sure. Uh, but you know, he's not quite to where he was 100%. But he made a huge impact coming in. I mean, helping out with that defense, especially when Raylan Goforth was kind of in and out of the game a little bit, banged up at, at times. And Tua Simi Nomura didn't dress out for that game or got banged up early, one or the other. So their inside linebackers were thin. So having Gentry back was big for them. Having him back against Dalton Kincaid. I don't know if you noticed this, Chris, but they did a lot of different things in that game against Michael Mayer. Now, Michael Mayer still had a solid game, but he didn't have a Dalton Kincaid type game. So that's the big thing. And you mentioned it. You know, if they can keep Dalton Kincaid to a Michael Mayer type thing, even if he has a touchdown or two, you know, if you hold him under 100 yards and he doesn't have huge impact plays consistently like he did against USC in the first one, then I think that, you know, USC is much better suited for this because. Where are the playmakers otherwise for Utah? You got Devon Vele and that one-on-one matchup with Makai Blackman should be a really fun one once again. That one kind of went back and forth the first time they played. But other than that, you know, Micah Bernard's been banged up. You know, they're they're on what their third, fourth, fifth running back over there. So, you know, they just don't have the same uh, amount of playmakers as maybe you you would be concerned about if you can stop that number one option. Against Notre Dame, USC lined up Corey Foreman. Against Michael Mayer to get some hands on him at the line of scrimmage. They lined up Tule Two Pelotu. There was a time when Tulitooth Pelotu was in the slot guarding Michael Mayer and then dropping into coverage. So, you know, they did different things to try to mix it up. And that was what ha- didn't happen in that that first Utah game, is like it was the same thing over and over and they couldn't make the adjustment in game to figure it out. So to see them slow down Michael Mayer a little bit, I think is a very positive sign that, you know, maybe they'll have some more answers against Utah now. Utah's going to watch that tape and see what USC did. So they're going to be able to counter that, of course. So it'll be a fun, that chess match there. But I, I remember watching the Utah game. The first time I re-watched the game, early in the game, Utah's running a lot of crossing routes, and they were able to find some open men because USC's in a lot of man coverage. So USC basically said, hey, we're not covering this well. We're going to sit in zone. And that's when Dalton Kincaid just started eating them up, uh, you know, those it, it, finding the soft spot in the zone. So now how does USC make an adjustment to that? You know, they did some different things like the, you know, they played man coverage against UCLA and you saw Corey Furman was in a zone where instead of the the safeties being the guys that are deep over the top, they were using some underneath guys for zone that, you know, maybe a quarterback doesn't see. And that's where you get some of the interceptions. So they've mixed up their defense a little bit in the last couple of weeks. I think that's, you know, when you get some of those turnovers from that, that leads to that swagger as well. So the, the defense will be the key in this one because both defenses are not good good compared to the offenses. You know, uh, USC comes in with the one of the top five offenses, and I think Utah is in the top 10 or somewhere, you know, top 15 at least. So both really good offenses. On the offensive side, what do you think is the key for USC to, to continue the success they had against Utah the first time, especially early, um, and, and, you know, to be able to continue that throughout the game, you know, because the last couple weeks it's basically seemed like, they only they only stop themselves when they get a couple penalties, or if they take a big sack, that's the only time anyone's stopping them. It's not like you know, it's a third and eight, they're just not completing a pass because there's really good coverage. You know, it's it's usually USC has stopped themselves the last couple of weeks. It seems like the offense has been really rolling. What's the what's the keys for you uh this week against Utah?
0: If we think back to it, Caleb Williams' sort of marched towards the Heisman really began in Salt Lake City. That was his first big game and kicked off, you know, this straight up this consecutive games of at least five touchdowns. That's where it really started. And I think Caleb is playing on another level than we've seen this season. And I think the important thing is just keep that confidence rolling. And I think he also has that, that inherent confidence of knowing that this defense really couldn't stop him last time around. And as you mentioned, the only thing that was really stopping him was himself or, you know, as a team, when they would get a penalty or he would take a sack and he's been doing, I think he's done a lot better of being more decisive when he's running the ball, uh, not really trying to stay too much in the pocket. And there are a couple of plays uh, over the course of, you know, this back half of the season, but I think he's done a better job of taking off and running. As we've seen, he's, he's been rushing uh, for touchdowns here left and right. And, I think another thing is, I, I I didn't really think about this until kind of we were talking about the differences as you brought up is, you know, U, uh, USC will not have Travis Dye. And I didn't really think about that because, you know, he played a pivotal role in that first game. Maybe not as important as other games, but he had over 100 total yards, you know, made made several big catches. Austin Jones, we know, has been playing really, really well. But I just wonder what that's going to look like, you know, an Austin Jones led backfield as opposed to what Travis Dye led backfield. I don't believe Austin Joes was getting a lot of receptions. You know, early in the season, he had some. And then in the middle when he wasn't really playing, didn't have any. But he's had, I believe, nine over the last three games. And uh, Travis Dye had three in that, in that Utah loss uh, initially. So I think it's going to be important for Travis, or excuse me, uh, Austin, to provide some receiving out of the backfield uh, in this game, just to just to mix things up and kind of keep that, that, that defense honest. But he's been he's running extremely well, and I'm excited to see what he does against, you know, a physical defense that we've come to know from Utah. And, you know, he had his best game of the season against one of the more physical defenses they played all season in, you know, a big Midwestern uh, Notre Dame front that has guys who have played in the college football playoffs. So he's at an all-time confidence, just like Caleb Williams is. So I think Austin Jones is going to be an interesting X-factor Knowing it's a completely different running back, you know Utah has to prepare for over you know Travis Dye, unfortunately, who's not uh, able to play.
1: And I think he's going to be X factor as well, but for a different reason. I got him and Josh Follow as X factors on the offensive side because the only time in that game where USC didn't seem to really be humming was when Utah was able to get pressure, and whether that was just Caleb having to throw the ball away or the couple times where they got some sacks and you know put USC in that uh, you know that negative yardage and they couldn't make it up. So protecting Caleb Williams is the priority for the offense. Now, if you can run the ball, obviously that helps it, and I think Austin Jones will play a factor there, but I think his pass protection has to be on point in this game too when they keep him in. Now, they used a lot of three – wide receivers with a tight end sets last week against Notre Dame because they wanted to keep Josh Follow in there to to block at times. They used a lot of two tight end, actually, and they would have Malcolm Epps run a, a passing route and keep Josh Follow in to block. So I think Josh Follow actually plays a big role in this game, too, you know, just protecting Caleb. I think that's really big. And, you know, I got some question marks still about that USC offensive line health. You know, they've been banged up. In and out of the lineup. Bobby uh, Haskins coming back was really key for them last week against Notre Dame, coming back against UCLA, even. Uh, I thought that was kind of what changed the the dynamic of the offense uh, in that game. And then Andrew Voorhees just kind of leaving games. So and we haven't really heard why he's leaving the game. We haven't, you know, there hasn't been anything on there. And I'm going to ask you about that a little bit in the ghost notes. But I, I think that the offensive line health is, you know, one guy goes down, and especially, like I said, how much of a war of attrition this the the first battle ended up being if someone big you know if there's a big time injury in this game and someone has to leave the game and is out for the rest of the game like happened for usc at utah with Eric gentry and jordan addison could that change the trajectory of this game and potentially usc's college football playoff hopes you know so that that's going to be interesting uh, especially on the offensive line but let's move on yeah, you know, we've talked a little bit about the the. we previewed the game on Friday. It should be an amazing atmosphere, sold out a lot of sales ticket sales from California, it seems like. um, because last time, last year, it was a Utah home crowd against Oregon. Uh, the first time it was in the Legion Stadium in Vegas. But pretty equidistant as far as the the, the time to get there. So uh, it should be really fun. I think USC fans are obviously super hyped about the potential of what could be. And Utah fans are excited about the potential of going back to the Rose Bowl. And it's, it's also interesting that USC is playing for a Pac-12 championship. But no matter the outcome, they're not going to the Rose Bowl. It just seems a little weird to me that uh, you know th- that that's not even on the table. They're either they're either in the college football playoff or they're getting bumped down to a different game. So uh, it, it'll be interesting to see where they land. Next Sunday we'll find or we'll find out on Friday for sure. But next Sunday will be the official word on the college football playoff participants. So if USC wins on Friday, we will find out on Sunday whether they go to Atlanta or they go to Phoenix. But it'll be one of those two. They will be in there. They have played their way in. Since that loss to Utah, but it'll be interesting to see how the rematch goes.
0: But let's think move about on. What you just said, though, think about what you just said. In like 72 hours, we could possibly be finding out USC's college football playoff fate.
1: Think it's, about that. It's it's remarkable. You have to give all the credit to this coaching staff and the leadership on this team, the players, the leaders. The fact, the way they talk, and this is the thing we said coming into the season. Hey, they really talk the talk right now. Brotherhood, uh, you know that there's leadership, that they're excited for each other. Okay, let's see how it plays out. When someone's not getting minutes, what happens? When you lose a game, what happens? When you have a bad game, you know Caleb doesn't play good against Oregon State. What happens? And each time along the way, they've they've stepped up to it. And I think you're seeing the progression of players throughout the season, too. I mean, it's not just a season to season jump for some guys. I think Caleb Williams is playing at such a different level than he was at the beginning of the season, and that's not and I think against better competition, he's playing that much better. um and there were some things early in the season, and you're like, yeah, he's really, really good, but he's still gonna have to do this and this, and right now you're looking at him going, he's really, really good, and there's gonna be some things to work on the offseason maybe like he is just uh, the the only thing i can point out right now off the top of my head like caleb needs to work on this in the offseason is keeping two hands on the ball when he's scrambling around that's something as soon as he gets to the next level they will not allow him to to move out of the pocket with one hand on the ball he does that it's something that usc fans should keep an eye on that could be a, a difference maker at some point just because, but he's also got—he must have really a really ridiculous grip. The way he has that thing on a string, basically, whenever he wants to. Uh, but it's—it's it's been fun to watch this team grow this season, and even from you know from a year ago, basically a year ago today, uh, a couple of days ago, when Lincoln Riley was hired, who they decided to get back. Uh, I, I thought, you know, if you guys haven't checked out the, the story from RJ Abadia about, you know, the uh, the decisions of Brett Nilon and Andrew Voorhees coming back and how much how important that's been, and I said that at the time, and I thought they would be in big trouble on the offensive line. But getting those two guys back has been monumental for them. Um, and he had a great story on it, so make sure you check that one out from last week. But let's move on, Chris. Let's go. We talked about this season. We're talking about it right now, that all the different things we've seen this season, you've gotten a different angle this year. So that's why I had to get you on the hurdle on the sidelines because you've actually been on the sidelines this year versus being in the box in the past, and you've taken on the ghost notes. We kind of, starting in 2020, once Dan Weber moved on from, from the company, we decided to split up the ghost notes. We would split them up over Zoom calls and different stuff and you've taken the mantle at practice and everything else doing ghost notes the last couple of years, and you added the game day ghost notes this season. And everyone is in love with this feature that we have. Um, And it's, it's become one of the fan favorites. How has the overall experience been for you being on the sideline, getting that different angle and kind of doing these ghost notes and, you know, kind of giving, giving the fans that sideline perspective that we have during a game which is what's, what I think you're trying to do. And maybe you, you explain what what's your, uh, your goal is of the game day ghost notes. And, you know, what do you think has been a success and what's been the overall experience been like for
0: you? Well, first off, I, I really appreciate, you know, those kind words about uh, the ghost notes, uh, the ghost notes game day, game day ghost notes, whatever you want to say. Uh, I've been humbled by the response uh, from the P and people that read them. Uh, The last one, you know, as you mentioned earlier in the show, we almost did 4,000 words just on the Notre Dame game and people really loved it. And I just want to say that Shaka does contribute a lot to those notes behind the scenes. Bonus ghost notes come from him uh, and there's always great observations that he has that I I add them in. So I just want to say that he does also contribute to those as well. And a lot of great notes come from him. But yeah, the ghost notes... Are just, you know, obviously Dan, Dan Weber's baby. And I, I've, I always, I kind of did my own ghost notes when I first started on the beat by myself, when I would write, you know, practice observations. And I feel like I'm good at being a fly on the wall and just being an observer, not really a talker, being an observer and, uh, you know, a, a wallflower, if you will. And so that's kind of a skill that I have that, you know, just picking up stuff and turning something, you know, that I see and I think no one else sees and turning it into an interesting observation. And then, you know, maybe sprinkling my own little humor in it because, you know, it, it's a football game, you know, there's there's fun stuff that happens and it's, <laughs> it's fun to kind of add a little bit of, you know, it's just, you don't want it to be kind of a boring read. I, I, I always wanted to have a little bit of personality in it. And I, I picture someone reading it and maybe laughing at me saying that someone, you know, the Reese's uh, Scout smells like peanut butter. You know, uh, you know, just little things like that. I I, I like to infuse that uh, wherever I go and uh, when I see an opportunity to write a note. And yeah, I think the, the overall idea for it was just to give fans, you know, a different perspective because as a fan, you only really get two perspectives: you get in the stadium. Or you're watching it on TV. And for the most part, you're very far away from like the actual field, unless you, you know, you're VIP and you're sitting right up close, or you're a big shot and you're, you know, on the field. But most people aren't like that. Most people aren't on the sideline. And we're one of the few people that do actually get to experience a game on the sideline. And I will say this: it is so much fun to experience a game on the sideline. You know, I've been covering high school games. Uh, For 10 years now, when I started as a newspaper writer, and it's so much fun on the sideline, I would get made fun of all the time by older reporters like, why aren't you in the press box like, no, I I get the most color I get the most, you know, stuff down on the, the sideline that's where everything that's where the real reporting happens. And I will say, you know, I did like being in the press box for a college environment because, you know, you're catered up there. You got the <laughs> ghost. You have notes being presented to you every quarter. You have Internet. You're relatively warm. Uh, and it's it's a grind down there, but it's so much fun and rewarding when you can see something happen up close. And, you know, look, the tweets are better when when you're down the sideline. I'll just say that even though sometimes <laughs> you don't got you don't got the, the access to the Wi-Fi to get you that the service. You don't know, have the service. You know, there's so many things. I, I'm sure both of us have so many good tweets that have died in our drafts because they weren't able to get out. But sometimes, shotgun, your tweets go out like three hours after they've happened. But
1: what uh, game was the last uh, away game? Whatever that was, uh, was that UCLA? I don't. I think it was UCLA. Um, or UCLA. Yeah. Maybe it was the last one before that. But like, just nothing was going through, and it was going through at different times. I know. I tried to shoot sh- sh- out a video of USC coming out of the tunnel at UCLA. That's what it was. And it tried, it tried, it tried. I gave up on it. And then suddenly it popped up on my phone after the game is like, you know, like three hours after the game. And it was like, tweet sent. And I was like, what, what tweet was sent? Oh, this is this. Fit. So like, I try to, I try to give guys, you guys that are the that follow on Twitter. Um, they get our notifications or whatever. We appreciate you when you do that and you interact with us. I don't have much interaction during a game a lot because it's just a flood uh, of stuff going on at one time. But I try to give a disclaimer at the beginning of games, especially at away games, and give it, give the Coliseum a lot of credit since the renovation. The Wi Fi there, the signal works really, really well to to get out stuff. Whereas other stadiums, like Notre Dame Stadium, is notorious. Like there are certain spots on the field you have to go stand if you want to send off a tweet. Um, so uh, you know it's sometimes it's difficult. So I give out a disclaimer before the game, like hey, or early in the game, these tweets are not going through. So if you get something. It seems like it's a quarter late or something. I'm sorry, I try to give my observations about different things I'm seeing from the participation and whatnot as the game is going along to to give an extra you know extra insight as well for for fans that that are that are following along with us that they're watching from home to you know that maybe you don't notice that you know Jalen Smith that since he's out of the game now uh, or he's out this week or Kalen Bullock's on punt coverage or that Shane Lee is covering kickoffs so what what why is Shane Lee? With a you know with a cast on his hand covering kickoffs, but USC has done that with Shane Lee, Tua Steven Demora, and Raylan Goforth. forth. We're all covering kicks the last couple of weeks uh, at the same time. It's like, well, if one of those guys goes down, who's going in? With Eric Gentry out as well, uh, maybe we finally see Ray John Davis, who was also on the kickoff coverage. But yeah, I, I, I completely, finally. I completely agree with you, Chris, about you know my mentor when I was you know first starting and covering high school sports. He he would always run the sidelines, and you just hear so much more. You you can understand things. I feel like better, especially high school games where they're not announcing things over an intercom to tell you this is what a penalty was. Like being down there, you actually can uh, you know understand like oh, okay that's what actually happened. But the advantage of being in the booth is there is a much different angle you can see. You know, I was in the I was in a suite uh, at the the Eagles Packers game this sat this Sunday, and it was much different being I'm like oh yeah one high safety here I'm like breaking down plays as they're going on just because you're up high and seeing it at different angles so it's definitely a lot different up there but you can also work on your story as the game goes along so we don't get to do that on the sidelines so Chris is taking notes and writing them all down and then has to spend a couple of hours kind of compiling everything and coming up with the 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 game day ghost notes and you know putting it all together well, you know, you talked a little bit about the experience of being down on the sideline, but what's it been like trying to put these ghost notes together while also doing field level highlights, while also tweeting out, doing all this stuff, multitasking at its finest, Chris? What's kind of been the experience like to do the, the ghost notes itself on on, uh, on Saturdays?
0: It's exhausting, I will say. <laughs> uh, but it is also like a fun challenge if you will it's it's like it's like a giant brain exercise at times you know trying to observe something and then but i'm also like filming something very important that i need to just kind of remember and try to write it down in between the break but oh they're, they're doing the two minute offense so i have to go and record again just keep it in my brain keep repeating in my brain so that happens a lot but it's fun but it's also like i never know where a ghost note this game day is going to take me you know where it's going to start The this season has been like where do I, where do I start every day so wherever I, or where I start every piece and so that's just the fun of finding where it's going to start you never know where it's going to start and I never know where it's going to end but I guarantee you in the middle there's going to be some fun stuff along the way but exhausting is the best word I can think of because I just keep taking more and more notes every time and I keep writing more and more every week <laughs> and The toughest part for me is not writing them down and, you know, balancing, you know, trying to get a tweet off or uh, filming something or running up and down the sideline. It's it's the after it's, you know, looking at this giant because I because I write I write early in my notebook to kind of conserve power in my 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 phone. And then once the game is going, I switch the phone and I'm in the notes, you know, typing in my phone. So you know, distilling, you know, the pregame in my notebook and then the actual game on my phone, staring at, you know, things that, you know, don't even make sense. I'm trying to, like, pull up my, my last one because there's things that don't even make sense where I have to figure out what I was writing at the time. I, I'm pretty good at doing that, but it's just like this, this game where I look back and I'm like, what was I trying to write? Like, oh, okay, <laughs> that's what I was trying to write. Yeah, Lincoln in front of recruits draws up. Mateos gets a pick. Like what the, I, I'm writing here, you know, Lincoln and Mateo are getting a picture together. It's like, and I, everything is misspelled by the end because it's just a frantic sh- uh, stew of of words and autocorrections going together. And it's it's fun to try to decipher later, but usually I have a good enough memory where I realize, oh, this is what I was trying to write down. And if I don't remember something clearly, I never want to put it in because I mm-hmm. always, I never want to go back and be like, that's not what happened. If I don't have it clear. Concise memory of what happened, or I don't have a note to back it up, I won't put it in there because I don't want to, you know, put anything out there that didn't actually happen. So, anything that's in the notes is something that either, you know, you observed firsthand and told me about, or something I observed firsthand and I got it down quick enough, right? It's locked in my head and I, I know what was said and I know the quote that was said, or I know the action that was done. So, that's kind of a rule that I have with these ghost notes. And I will just say, you know, trying to get notes off the USC bench has has been the most rewarding thing to do and also the toughest thing to do this year. And maybe you, I feel like maybe when you were doing it earlier, you know, all the years you've been on the sideline, how that was for you tweeting stuff out. But this, this new support staff has really put the clamps down on hanging around the bench and the security has been really tight and not letting you hang out there. Me and Shotgun have a common uh, staffer who I'm not going to name who does not like us, you know, hanging around. We have this internal uh, war with this person as they try to shoo us off all the time and people yelling at us to get away from the bench. But I still do it anyway because, you know, I'm 10K Trevino and I do what I want. So
1: <laughs>
0: that that's kind of been the biggest, I will say, challenge of Ghost Notes has just been you know, getting stuff directly around the USC bench and trying to get, cause I, I, I love nothing more than getting a great quote from someone off the bench and listening to what they're saying, whether that's a coach or a player or something like that. Those are, those are like the real gems for me is getting like actual quotes from players and staff off the bench and hearing, you know, what they're saying on the sideline because you don't really get that as a fan unless you're sitting super close or especially you don't get it on the TV so that's the whole point of ghost notes is just to give you a different point of view or perspective of a game that you watch. You definitely watch that game. You know, you watch it on TV, and you can see the whole field. You know, especially if you're in the stands. But there's so much that goes on on the sideline that you don't realize. It's like a its own ecosystem down there. That unless you're in it, like smack dab in it, on it, you're not going to see those things. So that's kind of what it is. Kind of peeling back the fog around the sideline and, and giving those like insider up close and personal notes.
1: And, and what's most interesting about uh, Chris's ghost notes from the game days is that Chris hated the herded it on the sidelines portion of the family Feud podcast so much. So, which is why I split off. I said, if there's not going to be hurt on the sidelines, I'm not doing family feud. And I said, I'm going to do my own thing. And started the Hurt on the Sidelines podcast because that's what I find the most interesting in games and things that we can bring, Keely and I before and now Chris and I to to bring to you guys is those those behind the scenes kind of moments. And I love listening to what the coaches and players are talking about just to get an idea of okay, if they're you know, I'm listening to the X's and O's of it, trying to see, you know, what are they complaining about? What are they saying we got to fix, just to get an idea and you know, get a better sense. To when I rewatch a game, okay, this is what they were trying to do. This is what didn't work, you know, because I know some people look at it and be like, oh, that guy didn't do this. And then if you knew the play call, you might be like, well, that wasn't his responsibility. That was someone else's. And so those are things I want to try to point out to fans when I'm watching a game or, you know, when I'm rewatching or doing notes and different things like that. To try to you know just so you get things correct so you don't you're not blaming the wrong person that's one of my biggest pet peeves is you know especially players that get blamed for things and it's like that's not actually his responsibility they did they can't the the Russians never you know they never contain they never contain it's like well he, it's not his job this week he's supposed to be crashing down every time and there's supposed to be that linebacker coming over so you know those type of things that maybe I can pick up on the sidelines and it's and it also gives you a great insight about the camaraderie of a team. To the togetherness of a team. Are they smiling and joking on the sideline because they're having fun and they love each other and they're you know they're, they have this brotherhood, or are they smiling and joking on the sideline because they don't care, you know they're getting beat and they're smiling and joking on the sideline like those type of things that maybe you, you might see someone laughing on a on the television copy or something when they show a close up, but you don't know what the joke is about, you don't know what's going on, you know seeing guys dance down there, seeing Caleb Williams just the moxie the you know the emotion how he doesn't have emotion during a game and then suddenly it just floods out of him at at the end of a game when he gets that big run against ucla and then he's you know tigger hopping like out of winning the pooh down the sideline after the game like it's very interesting to see his dynamic because during the game he's just kind of bobbing along to the to the music and everything while lincoln riley's pacing when they're down 21 10 he's you know, no worries at all. So it's interesting to see those dynamics on the sideline. That's what I really like about it. And then trying to just, you know, for me being a photographer, just trying to get those emotional shots. You know, when guys coming back to the sideline, everyone's excited. Or, you know, just the, you know, when they have the the emotion on their face. Um, and sometimes the, the staff members don't like you lingering around, which I understand. But, you know, there, there's multiple people that don't like me, so I don't have a problem with it. I understand what their job is and don't have a, that issue with it. But, Chris, I got to ask you, the ghost notes so far this season – Give me your weirdest observation so far this season.
0: Hands down, my weirdest observation is from the Colorado game. And I still don't understand it to this day, really, but it's pregame. I'm walking around, you know, kind of where the recruits are hanging out or that corner, and there's four guys on the field that are fans that have, like, you know, they they let fans, early the guys who have sideline passes, they they let them down on the field to hang out. They're taking pictures of each other on the call, you know, with the peristyle in the background in the corner. And, you know, one guy stops me, he's like, Hey, can you take a photo of this? And I was like, Yeah, of course. So it's for them. You know, I hold up the camera, take the photo, you know, frame it, whatever, take a couple shots. And then I'm like, I know none of them are holding up, you know, a fight on or whatever. So I'm like, Okay, do you guys want, you know, a photo with the fight on? And so I throw up fight on like anybody, and then they all just stare at me like I'm speaking Russian or something. No, no reaction. And then I'm like, okay, maybe they didn't hear me because it's, you know, it's kind of loud. No, I mean, it's the Colorado game, so it wasn't really that packed, but, you know, maybe they didn't hear me. So I I said, okay, and I just took some more. And then one of the guys who's the only guy wearing USC stuff, he's got a USC hoodie on. He's like, okay, okay, I'll do it. I'll do it. And then he just like <laughs> cautiously throws up the fight on and I'm like, uh, okay, that was weird. And I take the photo. And then after uh, he's like, what What does it mean? What does it mean? And I'm like, I, 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 I it's just like, I, I I, just like, I didn't know what to say. Like you're wearing a USC sweater. You're at the USC game. You, have, you, you, have, you seem to have no, no idea what's going on. Like you, this could be a basketball game for all, you know, and you just like, I don't know, it was just like really bizarre that that interaction I had where these guys are at a USC game. They seem to have no concept of what USC is. And, uh, you know, he, he he did it like I had asked him if he wanted to smoke a joint on the field. He was like, all right, I'll do it. I'll do it. I, I'm brave <laughs> enough to do it. He's like, all, all right, dude. I he, I guess maybe he thought I was asking him to throw up a gang sign. I don't know. I don't know, man. It was just really weird.
1: How about your most insightful observation? What's something that you've seen this season – that really gave you, you know, it, it, an eye into something that you hadn't noticed before, or didn't know, whether it be the relationship between someone or, you know, just the the way some something on the USC sideline, how it, you know, kind of goes about. What's been the most insightful observation for you?
0: I think it's easily for me the leadership of Eric Gentry, and this is something that you kind of saw in spring camp at times or, or excuse me, uh, fall camp. And, you know, we, we didn't get a lot of access. So you couldn't really see it fully, but there were times I could see little things from Eric Gentry. And then once the season started, you know, we, we talked a lot about, you know, Shane Lee being a leader in for the, for the linebacker room in general, just the, the entire team. And that's, that's still true. But early in the season, when I would go and walk by it after, you know, defensive stops or, Defensive struggles or whatever you, what have you? It was always Eric Gentry, you know, in the face of everyone. It was always Eric Gentry, you know, pumping up everyone. It was always Eric Gentry, you know, being super emotional and hyped up, and you know, getting guys excited, excited, excuse me, or you know, getting them set after a bad drive. You know, it was always Eric Gentry. So I think that's something one they really missed when he was gone after that Utah game, or you know, in those games following and obviously he was still on the sideline but there's a difference when you're you know you got the pads on you're sweating with everyone you know you're out there doing battle it's different when you're in the in the trenches in a game on the field you know giving out orders and you know getting guys fired up so I think that was something they really missed and that was one of the like early notes that would hit me uh, throughout the season that's been carried on throughout the year it's just Eric Gentry's leadership and his emotional importance for this defense, in terms of getting them hyped up, getting their minds right, getting their jaw set, getting them just ready to go out there and do and do battle.
1: Yeah, I think it's been interesting the the dynamic of leadership between him and Shane Lee. They they do it in different ways, but obviously they're both really important to this team. And Shane Lee maybe more overall to the team as a whole. And maybe he stands up and speak in front of the team versus Eric Gentry is that fire fiery in your face one on one type of guy. Um, that they, they get you pumped up, so do it in different ways, but that 's one of the things about this team they 've got so many leaders on this in this team that that aren 't necessarily captains or anything, but that you know that, that lead in their own way and do it in different ways and that 's why this I think this team just has played so well is because they all play for one another, and you know when someone's not playing well, they got someone there, they either picks them up or kicks them in the butt, you know depending on the player and what they need uh, they know how to treat each other the right way uh to where you haven 't seen like Any like back and forth where is this like? Are they going to go at it here? Like that type of thing? Like that that hadn't been a case. And usually there is some of that on a sideline, you know, during a season. But haven't seen necessarily seen that this year. USC's team camaraderie has been on just a complete different level. (laughs) Maybe we're uh, we're uh, a little bit jaded because of what we've seen recently, and especially last year, the recency bias that we've seen. But this year's team is just such different than than any of the others that I've seen in the last you know, a uh, decade or so. And last thing on ghost notes for, for your overall, something you couldn't put in about a specific person. Maybe you could say in general, what was something said or something you saw and you're like, Oh, I can't put that in there and incriminate this person. But you thought was either hilarious or, you know, that, that you, you wanted to put in, but couldn't.
0: You know, I get a lot of that, but it's mainly it's, it's all, it's always quotes, you know, there, it's always quotes that I can't put in the notes most of, the, most of the time, it's, it's coming from fans in the stands. And I, I think back to the Arizona game, there was this kid just heckling everybody that walked by. And he said some outrageously funny stuff. If you heard it, I was like, I can't believe this kid's saying this stuff. But I, I, things I could not put in uh, the ghost notes. So it's, it's, it's a lot of it is just fans heckling. Uh, and I put a lot of fan heckling stuff in the in the notes in general, because those are always you know fun, and to to hear how how opposing fan bases uh, heckle the Trojans, but nothing will top you know the Oregon State heckling from this season. But the other thing is, there's been some quotes from players that I've heard mainly on the road games where it's usually them coming out uh, of the tunnel uh, to take the field that i i just can't put in there i'm not naming players i'm not naming <laughs> what was said i'm not even gonna you know generalize what was said but it just they're just quotes that come out of their mouths that you know they're football players they're about to go to battle you know you can't you can't i can't put them in the in the notes even if I, and i don't even want to tone them down enough I, I can't do it justice so yeah there's mainly quotes from players of the other thing
1: The verbal version of Jordan Addison coming out with his both fingers up, uh, middle fingers up to the Oregon State fans as they booed USC as they came out and chanted F F USC and whatnot. So the the ghost notes have been great. I want to jump into our ghost notes from last week against Notre Dame, go through a couple things that really stood out there. Like I said, we almost got to 4000 words. We'll see what happens in the Pac-12 championship. Um, and oh, we'll, we're break at, 4, we'll break
0: four thousand. We'll break four thousand in Vegas, assuming there's a win. Yeah,
1: we'll see, Chris. We we might by the time we go out after the game, then maybe you won't remember all your notes and what they mean. So you might not get as many notes. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. But first, we're gonna k- take a break. We're gonna take a break. Get our break in here. Listen to our sponsors, and then we'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome back from the break. Make sure you check out the sponsors and spread the love a little bit there. Chris, I want to jump back into your ghost notes. Uh let's talk about the ghost notes from the Notre Dame game. Like we said, we got almost 4,000 words. We'll see what we'll get to in the Pac-12 Championship, but I wanted to kind of pick your brain on a couple of things that stood out to me. And I thought it stood out in your ghost notes as well. I thought the sideline atmosphere was just on a different level. I thought it was, you know, I think you could feel that USC is getting back to being USC just from the sideline atmosphere. The best sense, when? When's the last time you remember the sideline atmosphere being that good?
0: You're you're talking to like a relative rookie who hasn't been covering USC that long. I've only been covering the Helton era, but but and also remember I haven't been a true sideline true, person true. the whole the whole time. So I, I I have a very limited window, but I guess maybe like the 2016 season when that they were making that run and then everyone was so excited about the potential of where they were going to go. And I was down there on the sideline for the Rose Bowl, but the Rose Bowl is different. You know, that's not a that's not a regular season game. You know, that's that's something completely different. But that was like the closest I've ever felt like it came to in terms of what experienced in Notre Dame to, to, to the Rose Bowl, even though the Rose Bowl was a little bit crazier than that. But the UCLA game was also very crazy. Uh, it, it's just more spread out on the Rose Bowl. There's just more space. So it doesn't feel as closed mm-hmm. in like the Coliseum. So th- those two kind of stick out even though one of them is just one game back. But I guess the the 2016 season for me.
1: I think the Texas game, I think the fact when you have like Roger Clemens and Matthew McConaughey were literally over my shoulder at one point, you know, just chatting up the game. And then Ryan comes over and naturally starts chatting up Matthew McConaughey because that's what Ryan does. Um, I I think that was the last time you saw the celebrities kind of out. And that was kind of a one-off thing rather than, you know, a buildup of a season or anything like that. I think that's how you tell that, USC is getting back to being a dominant brand in Los Angeles. I mean, you see Will Am shows up on the sideline. You got Roddy Rich. You know, you got a couple of actors down there. You know, just random people are showing up to games that there's no specific reason. I mean, a few years back, you had people like, you know, Miley Cyrus is showing up in the student section. So, like, that's when it feels like USC is the national entity, USC, uh, much more. And I, I felt like... Being on the sideline, there were a lot more photographers for that game. Obviously, it's a big game, and there's been big games throughout the last decade. But you know, it felt like there were a ton of you know trading elbows with people a lot more, and seeing the former players. I think they're bought in now. You know, Cushing leads the team out, but Keyshawn's there before the game. You know, Willie McGinnis and and uh, Marvin Pollard are there hanging out. I, I talked to Scott Felix before the game, you know, Jordan ISF, uh, Steven Carrs in the stands, everyone going up to him after the game. So just seeing some of those foreign players that want to be a part of something, you know, especially those, those ones in the last five years, 10 years, seeing, uh, you, you know, the, the guys that I know pretty well, you know, talking to Daquan Hampton and, you know, seeing, uh, you know, whether they seeing Sue before the game, you know, before the pregame show and how excited they are. And I feel like some of them, feel like they missed out on this, you know, this, this opportunity and this, so they want to be a part of it at the same time. So uh, this I is why this, I came
0: to USC and now it's happening. Exactly.
1: So it, it didn't, it didn't live up to what I wanted to while I was there. Now I want to live vicariously through those guys. So I thought that was really interesting, the sideline atmosphere and seeing some of the, the celebrities and stuff and that someone from Roddy rich is uh, crew apparently knows you. So maybe Roddy rich knows it, knows Chris Trevino. It was his dad. His dad that, knows you. That's Pop, Papa Rich. Papa Rich. <laughs>
0: as, I, as I'm referring to him now. Yeah, he actually emailed a question for a Composite Two-Star Recruits podcast. Small plug, but that's the last question we answered uh, in our podcast, which is three hours plus. You can listen to that. You can listen to this one. If you listen to both of these, they'll get you to Vegas in no time if that's you're true. driving. But yeah, uh, his dad is a USC you know, big-time alum, and or not big-time alum, but I think he works at the school. And okay. He's a donor and he's a season ticket holder and he's a fan of the composite two star recruits. And he sent in a question and yeah, you can't tell me nothing. Roddy Rich's dad likes my podcast. So you really can't tell me nothing. Papa Rich, shout out to Papa Rich.
1: Awesome. Much better than Papa Roach. I would say, you know,
0: they, 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 people like Papa, Roach. They, they Papa to... Rich is for me. But Papa <laughs> Rich is
1: for me. Uh, speaking of Papa Rich and just a, a bunch of other people around the love from the fans, Chris, what, what's that been like for you? Um, You, your introverted self, having to experience people throwing ador- adoration at you throughout this season. Oh,
0: my God. It reached a fever point uh, at the, the Notre Dame game where somebody, you know, messaged me on Facebook and tracked me down to meet up with me so I could sign, like, give them an autograph of my name for their hat, which is like, like, you sure, you sure you want me to, to ruin this hat? He was like, yeah, do it. And it was like, <laughs> all right. And then, and then I, 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 we part ways and then some guy starts talking to me like, Hey, I'm a big fan. And then I'm walking along the sideline and there's so many people, you know, call out my name and, you know, want to talk to me, you know, just like, Hey, shake my hand. Uh, some guy gave me cookies. This is the second time he's given me cookies. Shout out to Hal. He, he brings me cookies down on the sideline sometimes. And people take selfies with me. A guy took a selfie with me and his friend and they showed me the selfie that you had taken with them earlier in, in the day. And I was like, that's a big thing because Shotgun doesn't take photos with everyone. Uh, so it, it's just this, you know, I, I don't know how to explain it. It's just very uh, surreal to have all these people, you know, kind of come up to you. I have people shout at me, uh, "Death Leppard sucks, which, if you <laughs> know, is the, the ending point of my, uh, uh, the composite two-star recruit. So There's a guy who just constantly yells that, that he loves me and he throws out the hard side every game that I see him. And it's fun. I will say that, but it's also like very surreal.
1: Yeah. I don't think you realize what you were signing up for when you joined the USC football uh, family here, Chris, um, the football.com crew. You know, when you came over from 24 seven, because our fans are the best fans and we we're not ashamed to admit that. Um, And I am not. I do not shy away from the photos, Chris. You know that. Uh, But we're going to have a meetup on uh, on Friday, excuse me, Thursday in Vegas. That's Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, I don't know what day of the week it is. I've been traveling back and forth on these coasts. On Thursday in Las Vegas, the Park MGM Sportsbook um, at six PM. Come out. I'm not flying in till eight, so you guys better stick around. I'll be there yes. as soon as I can.
0: There'll be something going on.
1: True, uh, we'll be hanging out as much as possible. Since Chris mentioned that I don't like taking photos and threw that out there, I want everyone to try to take a photo with us and post it. That's how I recognize people by face and see your name. That way, I can remember you for the future. Take a selfie with us, post it, tag us. What are, all that stuff? Uh, we're we'd love to you know to, to be 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 around you guys and interact with you guys. And, and, you know, we love the love from everyone. So really appreciate that. But th- that's definitely stood out in all the ghost notes that I've read from Chris editing his stuff is, you know, seeing the the, the love from the fans and Chris signing an autograph, Chris having to show off the tattoo because people don't believe it. Uh, you know, everything it, it's been, it's been great interacting with everyone. And we've said this for a couple of years on the different podcasts, but we really appreciate all the love and support from you guys as well, especially from all the hard trials from 2020 and 2021, and uh, whether it be a pandemic or uh, a season where you wish there would have been a pandemic uh, in 2021. Uh, So this season has been really fun to to see everyone being so effusive in their enthusiasm for the program this season. After I know a lot of you have been kind of beaten down and broken a little bit by USC football in the past years. Chris, a couple more things for your ghost host that stood out to me on Saturday – the massive recruit list. Talk about the work the recruiting staff is putting in and talk about the work, not just, not just of the coaching staff putting in getting all these recruits there, but of Annie Hanson, give her her flowers, Megan Mez, that whole group that are shepherding thousand people is what Annie Hanson said between family members and recruits and coaches and everything up to a thousand people they've done such a phenomenal job and I don't know you, you talk to more recruits than I do, but I have not heard a single person be like, yeah, they didn't really take care of me or this wasn't on point or they didn't, they spell my name wrong. Like I haven't heard one of those things. And those are the type of things where, you know, someone posts that on social media when you, you got a four or five star and like, they didn't even spell my name. Right. How much do they really appreciate? I have not heard one single thing from a single recruit or parent saying anything negative about the way the staff has handled those uh, unofficial visits and stuff. What did you make of the master recruit list and the work that recruit staff has been putting in the season?
0: This was impressive. You know, it's, we've seen, you know, big recruiting events and, and weekends and visitors for, for some games, but it it's always, it's felt consistent this year. I think it's the thing, you know, it, for, for USC to have a big recruiting weekend, you know, under the Clay Helton area, it, would, it was going to take them to be, you know, at a certain point in the season where everything was rolling, you know, using that talent to get wins. But this one felt like a, a every week there was at least one significant person there on campus. And they did a really good job of just – with organization has just been the, the key for this new staff. You know, going back to when they first arrived here and, you know, parents and hearing recruits talk about how everyone – just knew where to go. You know, there was never, you know, them being like lost, like, oh, am I supposed to be there? No, someone was there telling you where to go. You know, the the, the new thing for them this year, in the Coliseum has been the signs identifying where recruits and their families park, which is always, you know, something if you, if you're first time around Notre Dame or excuse me, USC, you know, parking can be tricky. It can be very hard to, to navigate and figure out where to go. And, you know, if you got a nice big old sign you where to go, that's, that's a bonus. And they have those on the sideline too, where you know, non-football recruits sit, you know, the basketball guys, track guys, then they have sections for football. And, you know, to see that organization, everyone is, you know, crossing their T's, dotting their I's, everything is in line and in order. And I think that has just been the biggest thing that, you know, they brought over from, you know, Oklahoma and Annie Hanson and the job she's done. And just the sheer number of people that they have working on that staff, it's just it takes a village to to run a recruiting staff like this and recruit at a high level. And Annie Hansen and that group, uh, they're doing it really, really well this season.
1: Yeah, I think they've done a phenomenal job. Obviously, when you see the list of recruits, it's uh, you know, it's kind of eye-popping the stars uh that are on that list. And, you know, to see them interacting with each other, with the players, with the coaches, I think that you know, you're getting a lot of good vibes from it. And Hey, when you're 11-1 and one and you're number four in the college football playoff, there's going to be a lot of good vibes going around the program. Uh, but one thing that wasn't a good vibe that I noted from your ghost notes was Andrew Bo- Voorhees' body language. Can you expand a little bit on what you kind of saw? He he comes out in the second half, um, and I don't know if it was USC felt like they had a good enough lead, and let's try to save him a little bit going forward, or if he re-aggravated something. But when Andrew Voorhees comes out of a game, it creates a massive shuffle on the offensive line. So it's not a simple like plug and play. Okay, we got somebody that's a really good backup. Let's just get him in there. It's not as simple as like the left tackle with Mason Murphy and Bobby Haskins. When Andrew Voorhees goes out, Justin Edich slides over from right guard to left guard. Jonah Monheim slides over from right tackle to right guard. Mason Murphy then goes in at right tackle in this instance. We've seen times where – you know, Mason Murphy's gone from left tackle to right tackle, and Cortland Ford's come in, or Bobby Haskins has come in. So, you know, when he goes out, it's a it's a multi-piece, multi-prong adjustment, and that's something that could be a dangerous thing to do in a game when you're leading and someone has one missed assignment, and suddenly, you know, it could be a game-changing play. What did you think uh, when Andrew Voorhees came out and seeing him on the sideline sitting on the bench? I first
0: noticed that when we were transitioning to the other side of the field for – the fourth quarter and I noticed you know the offensive guys every offensive player is on the field for that big offensive huddle not just the guys who are on the field the starters but and then Andrew Gorries was the only one who wasn't you know he was still in that little uh, semi-circle where the offensive line meets he was just kind of sitting there staring off by himself and then after the game you know obviously this big huge celebration everyone's rushing the field not rushing the field but you know moving towards the middle of the field and Andrew Voorhees is the only one who's really not re- moving to the middle of the field. He's just kind of standing there and eventually he does get up and kind of, you know, kind of walks off into the to the middle of the field. And, and he just had this look on his face that was just like it was just kind of like stoic and maybe like full of thinking. And maybe he's reflecting on his time. But I, I also felt a mix of kind of disappointment. I think that was that that kind of played into the fact that what I was told is, you know, there was a nagging injury that has been bothering him. And I think that he was pulled just because you don't want to re-aggravate something. You know, the, the USC had a pretty good control of that game and you really want him for this Pac-12 championship. And it, it's, it's an injury that that does need rest. And I think, you know, they're, they're just trying to save him just so he can get through this next, you know, this next last game not last game, but this, this next game. And after that, then you get a bunch of rest mm-hmm. and, you know, just be able to gut it out one more time, just save him as much as you can. And if he's not playing on Friday, just know that it's something bad because for him to not be on that field in what could, you know, playing for a pac championship, it would take a lot to keep number 72 off that field, given all that he's done and done for this program. But I think it was a mix of disappointment, just you know, not being able to finish the game because that was Andrew Voorhees' last game in the Coliseum. You know, that's a special moment. And to have to do it on the bench, not you know, not be on the field, not be on the field for that victory formation. I think that's that's sort of sobering a bit. You know, you you want to be out there and with you know with the team and all the hard work and the starters. But you know, I I think that that's kind of what we're seeing. But he did, you know, when he got in the middle, you know, he did come up alive a little bit. I know Dela McCullough, uh, you know, the former running back coach came up and gave him a big hug, you know. So there you got to see some some good emotion there. But you know, I think it was just a mixture of, you know, the his Coliseum playing uh, you know, playing the Coliseum is over and this last game at home, and but just not being able to finish it out essentially, you know, and having having to do that on the bench. So I think that that's kind of what we're seeing or I was seeing.
1: Andrew Voorhees, uh, you know, having talked with people around him, uh, you know, he's been through a bevy of injuries in his football career, you know, whether it be even high school and stuff and the stuff he's played through with broken bones and whatnot, and still just like tape it up basically and keep going. Um, So he is a, one of those tough, tough dudes. So I, I would expect him to be back out there Friday. Um, the fact that we didn't see him like have to be carted off or anything, I'm, I would be surprised if he's not out there representing for USC in the Pac-12 championship. Um, you, you mentioned Dila McCullough. I did want to point out. I got a chance to catch up with him before the game for a good five ten minutes, um, and you, you know it was just awesome to see him once again. It was you know basically the first time I'd seen him in person since you know the E60 thing had come out. So I had to talk to him about that and, and everything, finding his father and you know, that whole uh, story. So that was that was really fun. Spoil it. You Don't know, spoil it. Uh, the the you know, finding his father—that's part of the story. Uh, I but, know,
0: but if you haven't read it, go read it. Oh, it's you got to go greatest. check it
1: out. Go watch it. It's a good twenty minutes or so. But you can go watch that. Uh, you know that can be. After you get the three star the two star composite after you finish this hurt on the sidelines, go check that one out. Um, but you know, it was really fun catching up with him and seeing his trajectory as he continues to to work towards trying to become a head coach. It has been really fun, and uh, he's a great coach and you know really personable guy too. so it was fun to see him uh, before the game as well. so I wanted to point that out. Something that wasn't fun to see was after the game, uh, we wanna send our thoughts, prayers uh, to to the Lee family, I guess it is at least the the Shane Lee entourage. Um, you know, Shane Lee was up in the stands It appeared and someone had a medical issue and Shane Lee, you know, carried them off with, with some help in a banner that they ripped off the wall at the Coliseum um, and took them up. And there was a big delay about, you know, the media and recruits being able to go up the tunnel because they're trying to get this person in the ambulance. I actually had to leave to go catch a flight. So when I was walking out of the stadium, I saw the ambulance leaving and there was, uh, I believe, it, probably Shane Lee's father was in the um, ambulance with whoever was being taken care of. So, you know, just want to send our thoughts to them. On a much more positive note, there's this, there was a lot of chanting going on in the stadium. I don't know if you heard it, Chris. A lot of people were chanting this H word that hasn't been heard Heisenberg. around USC in a word. What was it? Heisenberg. Heisenberg. Yeah, uh Hindenburg. I I'm not sure what it was. Maybe because the, the...
0: the blimp had flew over.
1: Ah, okay. Yeah, that yeah. must have been what it was. It was all about the blimp. No, everyone's chanting Heisman, Heisman, Heisman. It was the word of the day in the Coliseum. Chris, what's your take on, you know, the the Heisman love coming from the stands? Uh, what would you get out of that in your ghost notes? And, you know, where do you think uh, this Heisman race stands?
0: I think it stands where if you want the Heisman, you got to go through Caleb Williams and to see, you know, the fans kind of supporting him, the, the – the student section guys who set up who sit up front, I I don't know if they have a name or not, but you know they're the they Trojan chest- Knights. <laughs> the Trojan Knights they were painted with Heisman and then Superman on the back, so everyone knew what this game was was kind of focused around and the theme was around. And obviously Caleb Williams had a, a great performance, three rushing touchdowns, four total touchdowns. It was it was his night essentially, and he kind he asserted himself as the Heisman favorite. So, it made sense that we were getting a lot of Heisman chance, Heisman chance breaking out, hit the pose a couple times which the fans absolutely loved and you know, it was just one of those nights where everyone was on the same page and that Caleb Williams had his Heisman game uh, right there in the Coliseum against a, you know, a big-time opponent, rivalry game. Uh, so you could tell he he really enjoyed, you know, getting to interact with the fans after he went up to them, gave them a heart with his hands to, to, to know that, you know, he, he heard them and he he loved their support. And, you know, they they showered him with another Heisman chant after that. And I'm sure if he would have gotten up on the the ladder to do the, the, the honor with the band and the, and the Trojan store, they would have serenaded him once more with that, but he declined that offer, which I thought was interesting. I did too. him you know, and I, maybe it goes back to something he retweeted earlier this month about, you know, making yourself sure you're just one of the other guys, uh, even though he, you know, he absolutely deserved it. You know, he, he declined that, that, uh that moment. So I, like you said, I, it was very interesting to see, but yeah, he kind of, I lost him after that. I don't know where he ended up, but I, I was following him. And after he declined, he walked across and then kind of disappeared into the mist of people on the field and, and, didn't see him again until the post game interviews, but yeah, that, that was his night. And that's interesting uh, to see. I mean, it's just interesting for me because, you know, I, I joke a lot about how, you know, I was uh, his swim coach for a little bit and it just, it just, it's just very surreal to see, you know, someone you literally saw as a child now grow up to be the best player in college football and win the most, maybe the most iconic, individual award ever and that's just a surreal thing to experience and, and see it's like you know I, I don't I don't know it's, it's just weird it's it's weird and <laughs> and I, I haven't fully uh grasped it, grasped it grasped it fully to you know go from you know morning practices when he's just like a nine-year-old kid to watching him destroy notre dame with his you know amazing athletic talents it's it's just it's just a very uh, uh surreal thing to see
1: i can have a similar not quite as a you know as high end as yours but watching Randall cobb anytime i see him uh he scored a touchdown in the game i went to on sunday because i was his student teacher at one point so I taught him weathering heights in in his senior year so it is really interesting when you see someone grow up and that's one of the things we get is most rewarding for us when we cover these players from when they're 12, 13, 14, usually around 14, 15 is when we first meet them um, on the recruiting trail and to see them grow up and become the the stars of the NFL and whatnot. So when you see uh, Rasheem Green come back, it's always fun to see that. Or you see Juju or Dory, those guys that, you know, we have a you know a decade relationship with a lot of times it's fun to see, but I, I thought it was really interesting You said it was his Heisman performance, and he had a couple of those Heisman plays. Don't you think it's interesting that his Heisman performance is actually one of his lower statistical outputs of the season? I mean, he only had, what, 232 passing yards and one touchdown? That's, you know, very low end for him. I think there's only one other game that he had uh, fewer passing yards. Um, But he had the rushing touchdowns, and he had the spectacular plays. And I think that's what stood out to everyone after that game or during the game was Just how how bad did you feel? Did you feel bad? I did for those Notre Dame defense alignment at any point.
0: I mean, I felt really bad for 57. If you haven't seen that clip I posted of him just absolutely destroying uh, Caleb Williams, absolutely destroying his ankles. He turned him all the way around (laughs) like a, like a Jewish dreidel, my man. It was just bad. Uh, And yeah, I mean, they, they are going to wake up. Or they probably still have nightmares about number 13. But they're also going to be able to tell their grandchildren, like, hey, Heisen winner 2020, 20, you know, he uh he uh we played against him. Uh and then they're gonna be like, Did you guys win? Is like next question. Next question.
1: <laughs> moving you know, on, kid, moving about.
0: on. Moving on, moving on. Moving on, kid. I said no questions about the outcome of the game. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, if you're gonna if you're gonna get, you know, topsy turvied and beat up like that, at least at least at least to be a guy who who won the the Heisman trophy you know
1: yeah and there were a couple of those linemen just just were done after individual plays like the one where he actually took off running rather than throwing the ball after escaping a couple guys the 99 on that play was just he was done he's like why am I still out here coach someone come get me Uh, but then USC will go tempo after something like that and they do not let those guys get off the field. It makes it that much easier for the offensive linemen who have been doing a phenomenal job all season, even you know with Caleb Williams running all over the place and it makes it very difficult for them. I think the offensive line has been fantastic. I want to point that out one more time. Let's jump into cu- questions. You talked about it. Those Notre Dame players are going to be telling their kids, their grandkids, move it on, move it on. We're going to move it on over Just to like questions. Nine
0: million questions. There's like so, nine million questions.
1: So there's like nine million questions. So we're going to try to do these pretty quickly. Uh, We're not going to both answer every question and give our full breakdowns of everything, but we're going to try to answer them pretty quickly because we got to get ready for this whole script of Las Vegas that's going to be happening tomorrow. I still got a pack. I still got a pack. So we'll start with, since we're just talking about the Heisman, Jason Hernandez had a couple of questions. He said, what are the odds that Caleb Williams lobbies for RB5 Reggie Bush during his acceptance speech of Heisman Trophy while at the Downtown Athletic Club?
0: I think it's a good chance. I, I think I have it in my mind that he's going to say something about it. And, you know, he recently met Reggie Bush. You know, he had that photo with him, Matt Leiner. So not saying that Reggie was like, hey, do this for me. But I'm saying, you know, <laughs> you're in that moment of, you know, meeting Reggie Bush. Like, you know, this guy's a Heisman winner. He's one of the greatest college football players of all time. The most iconic, the GOAT, if you will, for for a lot of people and a lot of kids that are Caleb's age. So I would not be shocked at all. In fact, I'll probably have a story ready for his comments about Gary. Maybe it's, maybe it's something quick. Maybe it's a two-minute monologue. It, it might be just fake. Give Reggie Bush's Heisman back. It might be something like that when he walks up.
1: That's his whole acceptance speech. I'd like yeah. to thank everyone and help me get here and give Reggie his Heisman back. Peace out. Or he might just drop a give Reggie his Heisman as he's walking off the podium, kind of how he's been dropping the fight on or fight the F on um, uh, on his way off the podium from the, the post-game pressers. Could be. Uh, jason also wanted to know free reggie oh could be uh, if you haven't noticed caleb's nails the last couple games they've had f-u-c-k-u-c-l-a on uh you know each hand last week and then this pat or two weeks ago this past week he had f-u-c-k-n-d with a couple of uh, i think emojis on, on the other two nails so you know his nails always are telling a story whether it be him supporting people and the uh suicide hotline i think it was uh that he, that he put on there the phone number previously or showing his disdain for people whichever one he's showing showing something you got to check out the nails each game because there's a story being told uh and jason also want to know if cw13 Caleb Williams wins the Heisman this year does the number 13 get hung in the coliseum before the number 5 yes the uh, so I didn't I, I think there might have been another question about this, but um does the I don't know the answer to this because I wasn't around for Matt Liner, Reggie Bush, but does the 13 go up next season while he's still playing? Does it end up on the, the peristyle end with the giant jersey number? I feel
0: I feel like it gets taken out of rotation once he's done, right?
1: Well, it gets taken out of rotation, but I- I'm just referring to the number being on the peristyle end, you know, the giant jerseys that they have over there. Do they go ahead and put it up or do they wait till he's actually finished with his career? I don't know the answer to that. Because obviously this happened with Matt Leinert, where he won and then he came back and then Reggie won the next year. So that's I- for
0: Ryan Abraham.
1: That's true. Uh, so that's a question that I have. We'll see, we'll see what happened with that. But the answer is that barring some significant three, four, five interception game. On Friday, Caleb Williams is your Heisman Trophy winner right now. We, we it, it's his to lose, and it would take a disastrous performance if he is just mediocre. He is probably still going to win the Heisman Trophy, um, in, in part because there's been no gigantic standout this season. Otherwise, you know, sometimes there's two guys that are really, really racing, and C.J. Stroud's kind of been that guy all season as a front runner. And then C.J. Stroud did not play well against uh, against Michigan last week and didn't play well the week before and kind of has gone, you know, has, has slipped a lot after he had been a heavy favorite earlier in the year. And the same thing with Bryce Young was some of the things, as his potential of repeating. So we'll see what Caleb Williams can do on Friday and if he can lock it up. And uh, I would not be surprised if he has a couple more Heisman moments like he did uh, last week. Jumping in on some more of these questions. Samuel, I want to know, do you think to Lenny, Um, Tyrone Tillini comes back for another year. Apparently Gerard on the cilantro boys pod predicted that he would be, he would, but I think he's already 26 and he has a really good year. So I don't really see him coming back. Am I wrong? So Chris, I'm assuming that you mentioned this on your take on this on the, the two-star composite. So I'm going to give you my take on this. So I thought this was interesting when Isaiah white came back for the basketball team uh, a couple years ago or last year um and i asked you know he's older does he want to start his professional career and i don't even know and and obviously in basketball there's a lot more professional options out there does tyrone tellini is he an nfl guy i don't i don't know if he is um you know i think he's definitely showing some huge strides from the beginning of the season he's become a guy that you know he played a career high snaps uh, snap count against uh, ucla like 70 something snaps was a lot for a defensive lineman um but they are really trusting him to be that guy in their defense right now in the middle of the defense so it, it, is he an nfl guy though i don't i don't know so if he does leave where is he going is he going just to be a free agent is he going to potentially be on a um a, a rookie Ross, a rookie contract to be on you know the the practice squad is he you know is he getting that money or does he come back, and I don't know where his degree stands, but if he comes back, it's not like coming back to USC is a bad thing to do right now. One, you're getting a stipend. Two, there's an IL. Three, you get free room and board. So you're living in Los Angeles for free um, with you know whatever family members he may have. I, I can't remember if he is married or not at 26, but um, you know the fact that you can do all those things, and that was one of the things that was told to me about Isaiah White coming back where I was like, oh, he's older. He's going to definitely go. And it's like, you know, it's not such a bad thing to have room and board taken care of in LA and, you know, being supported with all the extra things that you have around you. So, you know, if Tyrone Tolini does come back, I would not be surprised at all, just because it's not like he's a surefire top three, top four round draft pick. So that's when you would definitely be leaving, leaving for it. Dave want to know, since SC has a really strong passing game, I think it would be Utah's number one priority to try to slow down because of that. I think USC should try to run the ball pretty successfully and control the clock more than they did in their first meeting. Your thoughts? I think that's –
0: I mean, obviously Lincoln Riley is going to have his strategy, and that's the strategy he should go with. But I I do think that is a winnable blueprint for this game because USC, as they've shown, can run the ball really, really well. And they've done so the last couple weeks, especially with Austin Jones. So I I don't know if that will be the case but that is certainly a, a an avenue USC can go with with the way uh, number 6 is running but I think they want the ball more so in the in the hands of Caleb Williams to kind of let this let the, lead this offense moving forward
1: And I think in the Utah game, the first one kind of showed you that. I thought that there were times when they could have leaned on the running game a little bit more to take the clock down a little bit, try to take the crowd out of it. Because if you're running, it's a longer drive. You take the crowd out a little bit. They just get restless. Um, And they didn't do that at all. So, you know, obviously they were being super successful. I think they could be super successful again with Caleb Williams. So I think that tells you that they're less likely to do that in this game just because they've already shown that you know, the way they can beat Utah and if things are working again, I think you will probably see something similar. Dave also want to know with all the social media posts about the Pac-12 being a super weak conference, what are your thoughts on how the Pac-12 does this bowl season? Will they win at least 50% of their games? Where are all these social media posts coming from that are, are they looking at the rankings? Aren't there, what, six teams in the top 25 right now for the Pac-12? If your half your league is in the top 25, I don't think that's necessarily a weak conference.
0: maybe it is referring to like just people like Oklahoma trolls, like talking about how bad the PAC 12 is. Maybe that's what they're referring to, but to answer the actual question, I think they're going to have a good showing in the bowl season. That's my, my inclination.
1: Nicholas cage, who I figured you would really appreciate that. That username, uh, AKA Jimmy bones said, with the defense being somewhat of an enigma throughout the season, Is Caleb Williams and the offense enough to win a championship if USC makes it that far? Are there any recent examples of QBs that have dragged their team to victory in a title game? I mean, the easy one to look at is LSU and Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow, you know, basically they were putting up 45 to 50 points a game and led the team. However, I think that defense was a little bit better than USC's. So, you know, it's not a one-to-one correlation there, but I, I, that's the team you would look at if you want to say that they definitely could. Chris, do you think it's enough for, for them to be a, to win a championship?
0: That, I mean, in college football, I, I, will, I would say yes. I think that's certainly enough. But you still need the defense to do something. It has to have some sort of pulse. It just can't no one be out there making any plays. And this defense has done that, made plays. But I think certainly to in, in, the, in, the, in the stakes of the playoff and playing for a national championship, I think it'll come down to their offense just needing to outscore people and just be one point better than anyone, whether that's a 70 to 71 game or something like that. It, that's my, that, my, that is what it might look like. Not actually 70 points, but just needing them to score a lot of points uh, to to advance in the playoff, but certainly when it comes to offense and having a Heisman winning quarterback, that certainly gives you a far better shot than most teams uh, when you're when you're going to a playoff.
1: It's a double sided dagger because if your offense can get ahead, then you're putting that much more pressure on the opposition to keep up, and that's where you know you you know people. I think Joel Klatt has mentioned this a couple of times, but Caleb Williams is helping force the turnovers USC is getting because you are just you feel the pressure okay we got to keep up we got to keep up however if you fall behind in a game and you look at Oklahoma's track record under Lincoln Riley in the in the college football playoff you know they fell behind i think it was 28 nothing 28-3 28-7 against Alabama and they could never catch up the offense struggled in the first quarter and we've seen that from USC some this year think of the UCLA game think of the Colorado game if that happens again and you're playing a team that has elite offensive players like an Alabama did those, those season, then you can't catch up U S the Oklahoma offense was really good. The last three quarters. And I think outscored Alabama by a little bit, they got within 11, but they can never catch up because, and that's the double-edged sword there. Uh, the double-sided dagger is that if, if you get out to a hot start, sure, you can make them chase the whole time. You put more pressure, but if you fall behind, now all the pressure is on the offense that you gotta be, you got to be pristine every single time. So that's why it's so tough to be able to do that. Daniel Morgan said, can you give us some PFF grades from some of the linemen showing up in the portal? Tough to use stats, in quotes, to see any quality here. Dan, we're going to keep that in mind as we go through the transfer portal and we see all the names that go in there. For the offensive linemen, defense alignment, we'll try to throw some PFF grades in there to give you at least their rankings on them, even because obviously – you know, there's no good offense alignment uh, stats in particular to be able to get. So we'll try to keep that in mind. Thanks for the uh, suggestion, though. Voting Rufus, what is the likelihood of Alex Grinch getting a head coaching job? Do you think he would make a good head coach?
0: I think he'll get some inquiries this year, but I don't think he'll be stolen away. The Grinch will be Grinched away from Lincoln Riley in terms of a head coaching job. I think he'll get some... Some inquiries, some people's uh, kicking, the, kicking the tires a bit, but I don't think this is the year where he, he makes the jump to a head coach.
1: You know, I, I think he'll, he, he might get those, he might go through the interview process with some people, but the places where he might get a job would probably be your group of five, you know, the head coaching job. And if you are a defensive coordinator, offense coordinator at a top ranked team, is that what jump you want to make? Or do you trust in yourself and say, oh, when I get some more guys in next season, the defense is going to look this much better, and then now the whatever SEC job or Big Ten or you know, Pac-12 job opens up, that's the jump I want to make rather than having to go to Group 5 and then trying to have to make that jump to pack uh, the to Power 5 at a later date. So that's the, the dynamic that a lot of coordinators or assistant coaches uh, have to go through as they're trying to decide you know, which jobs are the right ones to take. Gustavo, want to know what tier—average, good, great, legend—of safety do you think Kalen Bullock is right now in USC history?
0: I would say his freshman year he was good, which is you know something that that's important when you know thinking of the context that he was a freaking true freshman starting. He was good, and right now this year we're seeing him good go from good to the great. Uh, I think he's been uh, more so in the back half of the season been trending towards that great side so he he is on a really good trajectory right now
1: so this is looking at him as kind of in his career that's what gustavo's asking because he follows up with where do you think he'll end up when he goes pro so i would say somewhere between the good and great right now like if his career were to end you know if he were to transfer or you know he just decides not to play next year you're like oh he was a he was a pretty good um you know safety in usc's lineage but next year, you know, he's got all a freshman All-American. Now he's at least pro football-focused All-American this year. We'll see if he gets any more awards. He probably will. He might actually make the All-Pac-12 team, Chris. Can you imagine that?
0: I mean, just an incredible comeback story for a guy who couldn't even get an <laughs> all honorable mention uh, selection. Just one of the greatest stories in sports right now that no one's talking about.
1: <laughs> um, but – Then, you know, if he repeats what he did this season, has another good season next year, now you're getting up into great and potentially, depending on how good next season is, it's hard to get in legend status as a USC safety when you think about some of the names that have come out of USC from Mark Carrier to Ronnie Lott to Troy Palamalu, all the guys in that group. So going to be difficult to be, you know, legendary status. You know, it's tough to be there. But we'll see. We'll see what he can do. Chris McGinty, if the Pac-12 has 544 total national championships, but USC and UCLA have over 230 combined, will the Big Ten be the Conference of Champions when these are added to their 299 titles? Chris, who gets the Conference the, of Champions title? The,
0: the Conference of Champions is wherever Bill Walton is, so that would be the <laughs> Pac-12. So that that is my answer, and I'm sticking to it.
1: Bill Walton did say on the basketball um, uh, broadcast tonight that you know Tom Izzo tried to come up and say hey we're you know we're uh, fraternity brothers now because USC and UCLA are going to go and he said no there's no truck stops in the conference of champions so yeah. uh, i don't th- i don't think bill walton's going to agree he is not it sounds like Joey freshwater opinion on whether any of the top 4 should be penalized in standings win or lose this weekend
0: i think they should only be penalized in terms of losses, if they get like blown out, that that's my opinion.
1: Interesting, and you know, I, it's a difficult thing. USC and TCU are the ones that really uh, are the ones everyone's looking at. But you know, if Michigan loses to Purdue, shouldn't you look at that and be like, is that really a college football playoff team? I don't know. I I think this year that there's there's not a deep run of teams that you'd be like, yeah, that's definitely a one they should be in. You know, this team's playing great the rest of the season. Like if USC was at six right now with the way they play in the last six weeks, you'd be like, that's a team that should be in if someone else loses. It doesn't feel like anyone's really rising to the occasion right now to be in that, you know, five to eight range to that should be in contention for it. So we'll see what kind of happens. Cozy Rables, who do you think uh who you guys have scored in the first touchdown for USC?
0: For Austin Jones. Austin Jones?
1: I will go with – I'm going to throw it out there. It's just going to be Jordan Jordan Addison. I mean, I think he's going to have – they're going to draw something up. And, you know, he's going to be in the end zone once again, similar to uh, at Utah. He scored early in that game too. De La Cruz, how would you reconfigure the Big Ten Conference Championship once USC and their little brother join? With that many teams and quality coaches, do you see any – very? do you see very good SC teams being squeezed out of a shot at the title?
0: Uh, do they mean national title or Big Ten Big title 10. because title. I think Big Ten. Well, I, I was going to say, you know, the, the the playoff is going to be expanded to twelve, so they'll still have a really good shot at the national title. That's what they're worried about. But I'm not really sure how to reconfigure the Big Ten conference championship. I I, I assume that USC will be opposite of Michigan and Ohio State. Uh, in their little, they're, they're just to add some more firepower to the other side of the uh, I don't know which one is east or west. I, I don't follow they're in closely, the west.
1: But. I mean, they're in the east, and the east has dominated the Big Ten championship. It's won every single year, they've had it. I wouldn't be surprised if they follow the Pac 12s route and just get rid of the uh, you know, the the conference yeah. championship divisions and just take the two best teams, but then. When it comes down to it, then you got suddenly – all of it, All of a sudden you got all those tiebreakers because everybody's not going to play everybody and it's going to be all hectic at the end of the season and Chris is going to be very frazzled trying to put together the story on what all the tiebreakers are. T. Griff want to know, who are your biggest surprises on how well they played or developed for both returning players and transfers?
0: I would say for me Tyrone Teleni
1: mm-hmm. because
0: Tyrone Toleni really did not – He's only played yeah, football a couple of years. Yeah, he he's barely played football, and he I think his like career stats were like two sacks in like three years at Kansas State or something like that. He just was a giant enigma, and I I recall after his first uh, interview session with the media, I remember a a media member saying that he'll never play here. And lo and behold, seven and a half tackles were lost. I believe that is second on the team. Uh, I mean, obviously no one's catching Julie to blow to, but seven and a half tackles for a loss. That's a really good season. And he is playing really, really well. And he is a critical part of this uh, defense.
1: I think the guy that stands out to me is the guy that stood out at the very beginning of the season, Sierra Wright. I mean, from where he is right now versus where he was last year, even though, you know, USC went with Jacoby Covington against Notre Dame and they're bigger receivers instead of the, you know, they don't really have the quick, uh, twitch receivers that some of the other teams do so they went with a bigger body as they have been doing in the red zone much of the season i think he's a guy that's that stood out he's been pretty much a lockdown guy over there he has given up a couple of big plays but besides that he's been very steady for them at the cornerback spot conquest six on the p had a similar question so we'll see if you can come up with a different answer here pick a player on offense offensive defense that's been the most pleasant surprise this year Another guy that I would mention on the offensive side is Mason Murphy. You know, the development from that first game when he goes in and gets – or first or second game when he goes in and gets a penalty right away and, you know, gets beat in one of the first three or four plays to where they have trusted him to start in multiple positions like three games in a row. So uh, I, I think his development is really big and big for the offensive line going forward.
0: I'm just going to say also on the offensive side of the ball, Taj Washington.
1: Taj Washington
0: was somebody who did not seem to be getting a lot of run in spring and fall camp. And then lo and behold, he's the second leading receiver on this team when we look at it. And he's had some really good touchdown grabs and he's been a playmaker for this offense. You know, I know a lot of people were frustrated last year when the offense was trying to make him a 50 50 ball guy in the air. And that does not work with his skill set, but they're using his skill set perfectly for this offense. And he's been a playmaker and he's playing really, really well after some inconsistency last year, you know, with some drops mm-hmm. and, and and stuff like that. And he's been, you know, he's certainly taken his game to another level. And I know he's really excited about what how, how he's been playing this year.
1: Yeah, that's been a fun one to watch, especially because if you looked at it coming into the season, you'd be like, he's a similar type of receiver and not as explosive as Jordan Edison and maybe Mario Williams. Maybe he's a little bit less explosive than those two guys. So you question, all right, are they going to run anything for him when those two guys are on the field? But he's made his own mark doing, you know, playing a little bit different position, being that fourth receiver, the second slot receiver. And he does a really good job of getting open when stuff breaks down. I mean, he's made some really nice catches. That one that he had against Notre Dame where he went up over a defender and caught a ball. That's that 50-50 ball that you know he was not catching at all last season. And one of the things was he had no confidence last season. That was where the drops came from. So I think he's playing with a ton of confidence. So it, it's been fun to watch him explode. And you know, I know a lot of people have bagged on Brendan Rice, but he struggled with his confidence. And if everyone was hyping him up, maybe he's making a couple more plays. Wide receivers and confidence go hand in hand uh, with the, their performance. So uh, I think Brendan Rice is a guy that could have a big breakout at some point still too. From a, our flow, want to know from a defensive perspective anything we need to be aware of about USC playing on turf in a dome, any advantage? Now, I saw that Vegas they could potentially have dome or turf. I, don't, I mean, uh, excuse me, grass or turf uh, depending on it. Do you know what the playing surface is, and if that's even possible at uh, at at Las Vegas's Allegiant Stadium?
0: I I have no. I mean, this is my first time going to a league. Allegiant Stadium, and I've heard people say that they can change it out, as you mentioned. So I'm not really sure what that's going to look like. So I'm in the dark on that.
1: Yeah, I think it would depend on the weather as to what they decide to do there. Um, If they're turf, the the biggest thing is changing directions. How does it, you know, how does it kind of hold those type of things? So how does that play for Eric Gentry would be my question for USC's defense. So again, we'll see uh, what the playing surface is. Chris and I will be tweeting out all that stuff before the game when we get there. Jay from Thessalonica, one of my one of my favorites on Twitter, ranked the Pac-12 football hoops, football and hoops combos. I'm not going to rank every one of them. I didn't write this down beforehand to, to be able to do that, but I'll tell you that Cal is at the bottom because their football team is ter- terrible, their basketball team is terrible, and no one else really has that duplicity that they have. If we're just talking about this year's teams, I think Oregon is near the top. They're always you know good in basketball. Good in football, USC probably right behind there. Probably UCLA up there if we're talking about programs in general. I think those three are your 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 front runners overall. Um, and which order will, would depend on you know which one you're putting more weight on and what USC ends up doing this football season. Chris, any thoughts on the combos?
0: I, no? I can't follow. I can't follow up with the world's greatest USC <laughs> basketball beat writer. So that's
1: uh, all best. You- Beth want to know, I hate to voice this, she says, because bad juju, but haven't seen it addressed. Where is USC projected to play if they do not win the Pac-12 championship?
0: Still getting a New Year's Six Bowl. I think that's Mm -hmm. pretty much uh, been solidified with their season. I believe, you know, Cotton Bowl is is a possible destination. One of those bigger at-large bowls, but I would say the Cotton Bowl – it would be the big one, assuming that, you know, they don't follow the Rose Bowl.
1: Over QBU, want to know over under 10 transfers in the porthole this year? Going out? i assuming that like 10, 10, no, 10 players. I, from... I, I, th- I thought he meant 10 transfers coming in, but mm, well, you read it a, a different way. We're... So you answer yours, I'll answer mine. <laughs> Damn it. Uh,
0: 10 transfers, so 10 USC players leaving the program. I would say less than 10. I would say less than 10. I think you're going to see some some transfers out of that defensive back room and some of maybe those uh, deeper reserve offensive linemen. I think those are where your two two your most transfers will come out this season.
1: Yeah, I think you would probably go over on it. I think it would be around 10, but maybe a couple over. Um, I think you're going to get – with the way they're recruiting on the freshmen, uh, the incoming freshmen, the high schoolers, Makes it hard, but I think they'll still get ten um, on the from the transfer portal this season. I think you're going to look at the offensive line, you're going to look for another playmaker, you're going to look for defensive help in multiple positions. So I think they end up with over ten. I don't know, Chris. What, how about you?
0: I would have gone under ten. I would have gone like around eight or seven.
1: All right, we'll see. I know
0: what... I, I picked I picked over five on the podcast the composite, but I would say under ten. So between five and. Less than
1: 10. It'll be interesting to see just how USC tries to rearrange this roster uh, and how it changes from year to year, because obviously you're going to have some players leave. You're going to have some players NFL draft, some players in the transfer portal. So we'll see how many spots are available to be able to do that. South Coast Trojan, does USC finish top eight in recruiting without portal players included? Just the 23-cycle recruits? If yes, why do you believe so?
0: So that's five spots from where they are now. If they win, you know, going to the playoff, I'm going to say yes. All right. Because you're going to get, I'm assuming, you know, based off that win, I'm assuming you're going to get, you know, a guy like Roderick. I think you'll you'll play for some other guys. You know, Mateo is still on the board. Deuce Robinson, you still have a chance to to make up with him and get him on. So there's, there's two five stars out there you're fishing for. Another top 50 guy in Roderick Pleasant. There, there's some, some big boosters for that, for that. And then the possibility of, you know, taking someone from someone else's class, flipping some guys uh, in December and especially with the season they just had. So I would say yes.
1: It'll be Again, I think it depends on who all goes in the portal as well as to, you know, how hard they're trying to get some of those. New Fan 58, uh, similar question. How many, if any, of the current recruits get processed? I'm sure that some might be placeholders until bigger fish get on board. You think there's uh yeah.
0: no mini- I'm just saying I, I I could see them processing a couple but I think for the most part across the board they they like the guys that they have and there's some guys that they do need you know even if they are you know three star guys that they need in there in the wings to develop.
1: All right Chris you made it through the football questions to be yes. able to get to the fun questions. This is why I have to put the fun question at the end because Chris will just leave. Otherwise, you know, if he's if he gets the fun questions done, he would have pieced out on me. So we got some some Vegas questions specifically since it's the Pac-12 championship. Several of these are Vegas related. TJW for SC, want to know? Do you hit or stay on sixteen? Hit or double on eleven against the ace, Chris? Do you even know what any of this means? Because Chris wanted some help with gambling going to Vegas. How much blackjack have you played?
0: I've played blackjack, just like BSing it, not in a high stakes situation where, so, but I really don't know what I'm doing is, is what I'm telling you. <laughs> if someone was supposed to teach me, I thought they said you hit on 16 if the river boat was showing. I have no idea what that means. I just made that <laughs> up. Uh, you stay on 11 if the jacks are, or if the ja- jacks are singing. So I would say no.
1: Right? Uh- I'm a double down guy. You know, I like I like push it, um, though against Ace makes it difficult. I like to read and just see how many face cards have been coming up recently. Some people might call it counting cards. I try not to count them. Just you know, getting a general idea. Right, Chris?
0: Sure. Whatever you said, man. I'm going to be a blackjack <laughs> master after this weekend.
1: <laughs> Ilium55 want to know, which sketchy strip casino do you prefer? Excalibur, Tropicana, Circus Circus?
0: Never been to any of those, but just ranking the circus one always scares me. It always just scares me. <laughs> I don't know why. I would probably pick the Tropicana and then Excalibur.
1: The Tropicana because you have history there versus Circus Circus where you have clowns versus Excalibur, which is like a run-down Disneyland. So I think I think you have to go with Tropicana on that one. I picked, I picked right. Uh, Keely wanted to know. Someone who we've heard from before, if the Peristyle staff was cast in a remake of Oceans Eleven, who would everyone be? And I think Chris has thought long and hard about this question after seeing it earlier. I'm
0: going to take it from here, actually. You don't have to do anything. <laughs> I broke it down. i'm I'm throwing out the guy who plays the uh, the backer, the 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 financial backer. We don't okay. need one of those for this for the situation. but, I'm going to start from the bottom Turk and Virgil, you know, the two, if you don't realize, I'm going to give a little background, but the two kind of glue guys are so the comedic relief, those are the, the two guys that fight all the time, the brothers, that's me. And I'm putting Austin green as that other role because, you know, we do glue guy pieces. I see Austin kind of tweet. It's kind of similar to what I do on Twitter. So I see him kind of branching out on that. So I'm putting me and uh, me and Austin as the kind of Turk and Virgil comedic relief kind of guys. Livingston, that's the tech, the tech guy. That's RJ. You know, he's very analytical. I think that's a that's a no brainer plug and play. Stanford guy, Lo- Stanford guy. Yes, uh, uh, uh absolutely. Uh, Frank Cotton, he's an inside man. He he's been on the inside. Who is that? That's Harvey Hyde, baby. That I'm going all in. Harvey Hyde as Frank Cotton, as the inside man. Saul Bloom, also another kind of inside man, kind of a greaser, slick talker, fast talker. That's Dan Weber, baby. And yes, their, their ages do sort of fit together, but, but it's beyond that. And then I got Linus Caldwell, the rookie, the baby face lead man. Who does that sound like? That's Jack all the way, extremely talented, you know, still, still raw in some places, but you can see the talent flash in. And that's why they brought him under their wing. So Linus absolutely is, 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 is Jack Smith. And then, basher the explosives can be a little loud that's absolutely shotgun no 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 doubt about it you know basher's the kind of guy who's getting in a shouting match with uh todd orlando after a game that's absolutely a <laughs> shotgun to a t and i've seen him do that uh the amazing yen that one's easy for me that's ahmed uh, ahmad because uh, like the amazing yen uh very mysterious. He's the one you don't know the most about. And we had no idea about Ahmad when he first started here. He was the tweeter, and that was it. He was just this mysterious figure. We didn't know who he was. And that's the uh that's the role I'm going with him. Danny Ocean is obviously Ryan, you know, kind of a leader, uh, charismatic. Uh everyone wants a, a piece of uh Danny Ocean. So Ryan ha- absolutely has to be Danny Ocean. And then Keely, I know she doesn't work for us anymore, but she'll always be a part of the Paracel staff. She's rusty. Uh, she is definitely a lead, a lead uh, heister in this situation. Uh, one of the brains of the operation. Uh, without Keely, everything will just fall apart. And I'm sure USC is finding that out too, with all that she does and all that she did at USFool.com. Also, they're both blonde, so that also fits uh, perfectly right there. So that is my my oceans eleven
1: breakdown. I've got one complaint here, and uh, Rusty is always eating, and Keely can't eat anything because of her stomach issues. So,
0: yeah, I mean they're not all perfect fits, but <laughs> outside of the eating part, I think I think Rusty is a heavy hitter, and Keely is a heavy hitter too. So that 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 fits for me. That's all, all
1: right. I'm... Well, since we're talking about Ocean's Eleven and stealing money from casinos, Joey Freshwater, would know if you had to rob one casino, which would it be?
0: Uh, if I had the flamingo, I'm gonna rob the flamingo. Is there a Cause reason everyone, why? Because because everyone's gonna pick the Caesars or MGM or all all the other all the other ones. The flamingo, no one's really paying attention to the flamingo.
1: I'm going with the Cosmo because the Cosmo is just a dope. That's it's just dope. You know it's uh you know it's a great vibe every time I'm in there. Everyone's well dressed, so you know at least you're robbing something while you're looking looking fly. That was so my I'll, second I'll, one. Okay, so we're going to the Cosmopolitan after we rob the the Flamingo. I mean, we yeah, would never. That's, what, that's We would never. Uh, Tracy, you want to know, Vegas performer-based question, which player from USC's team is most like Elvis? That's got to be Caleb Williams, right? Uh, and taking it back so. to the Golden Era, which position group is most like the Rat Pack?
0: I think it's uh, the wide receivers. There's so many personalities in that room.
1: That was exactly my choice. A lot of smooth talkers, you know, they're smooth on the field, like the Rat Pack, and they're diverse. You know, it's a unique group. They have a lot of different qualities um, that make them really good, but blend them together and look what you've got. So I I, I thought was right with you on that one, Chris. Jay Money wants to know who gets to the high, gets to be the high roller at the blackjack table and who are the card counters. We would. I think would Ryan never... is
0: the hard roller. I'm bad at math, so not me as a card counter. I'll tell you that right now.
1: Well, none of us would ever do that, Chris. We're going to Vegas, and we don't want anyone that's listening to this to then be looking over our shoulder the entire time. So we would never.
0: But also, RJ
1: (laughs) could be. You know, it could be uh, the the character from The Hangover. It could be. um, Could be from. uh, Blanking on the name. Rain Man, you know, go count Rain cards. Man. Could be anything like that. You know, he's got he's got a smart brain, so he could be doing that. So uh speaking of the hangover, Del Delvin Afusia want to know which characters would the Peristop crew be in the hangover. Less characters here, Chris.
0: Less characters. I think shotgun is definitely um the uh Bradley Cooper's character. Yeah. Uh, get a couple drinks in him. You know, Bradley Cooper is uh, a married man. Uh, but once you get a couple of drinks in him, that, that personality from the from the back in the day comes out. I think that's shotgun. <laughs> I could easily be Doug. I could be the guy who falls asleep <laughs> on the roof. It depends on what my mood is, but I could also be Alan if enough alcohol is in my system. Absolutely. I could be I could be on one, uh, for sure. So I, I think those are my answers.
1: I I think Ryan is also the most likely to pull his own tooth out. So also
0: also, out true. also true. Also true.
1: Uh, Mike Fisher want to know have you watched National Lampoon's Vegas Vacation to Prepare there Chris I
0: have not I have not unfortunately I don't think I've I've ever seen a National National Lampoon
1: I think that I I don't think I've seen Vegas Vacation since having gone to Vegas for the first time when I first got out to LA which is interesting Uh, but a great movie Ty want to know if you had to do a cross country road trip with HH how would you pass the time speaking of the ghost notes um, you know, the, the character HH has been introduced recently to the readers. Chris and Chris introduced this character, this person, who's going by HH. And as soon as he did, I texted him and been like, is it this guy? And he was like, how did you know? Because, you know, we, we all knew exactly who it was uh, from the description, but he is definitely an interesting character. So, Chris, if you had to do a cross-country road trip, if you want to do a 10-second wrap-up of who HH is and why he has been so sort of prevalent in your ghost house recently, but then also, how would you pass the time on a road trip with him?
0: It's just an older gentleman, USC fan, that would come to practice maybe once or twice a year uh, during the Helton era, but I've seen him a lot more the last, like, four weeks, more than I've I've seen him in any given year. And he just... Dominates uh you know, as the guys come out of practice, he's talking to coaches. He's cherry on the team. He's saying things that are, you know, a lot of people say online, but he's sort of saying it to the players faces and specifically Brendan Rice and when it comes to his drops. Uh, so it could be a little cringy, if you will. My body sometimes does this. Right? He doesn't always know which players which, and he gets them confused. And that also makes my body go, oh, it makes me want to run away. Uh, so I just observe it all and write it all down, but I wouldn't really have to do much. I would just probably have to say one question, like uh, what's your favorite USC moment? And then he will go off for like three hours and, and then it would he'll- just keep jumping to stuff and different stuff.
1: Yeah. Tangent from one thing to another, which was a great part of the last ghost notes. So him having a conversation and how the conversation uh, progressed, which was really interesting to see there. Uh, the, he is, he is a pretty good personification of the P, to be honest.
0: Yeah, the P took offense to that. I would just let you know. But, hey, when you're faced it it's with, true with, because – I know it's true, but they don't want to say that it's true.
1: Because he has some knowledge. We have some knowledgeable P uh, members and post some really intriguing, interesting stuff. But also we have members that are just off-the-wall crazy – And at times that's what he is and doesn't know who some of the players are or hasn't been paying attention. But that's why we love the P because we let everybody in and see how it all melds together. Pancho want to know, is HH in the Wolfpack? He's
0: not in the (laughs) Wolfpack. I would say that that right
1: now. Uh, Jay Brax had a question, is USC players as Avengers, who is which one? And we're not going to let that happen because I still haven't watched all of it, much to Chris's chagrin, so he doesn't get to answer that question. Sorry, guys. Faye P Carol want to know chips and dip or chips with guac?
0: Uh, chips and dip for me, but I will eat chips and guac.
1: Yeah, I don't like avocado, so I'm all about chips and salsa, though. I'll eat a basket by myself at a Mexican restaurant. So
0: he will. I've seen him do it.
1: It happens pretty much every time I go to Mexico. SC Dad wants to know does Travis, that'd be Travis Die, get to travel with the team to Las Vegas for the coin flip? He gets to travel for oh, more, yes. more than the coin flip. He'll be down on the sideline, he'll be coaching guys up. He has an earpiece listening to the headsets of the coaches during a game and is, you know, taking everything in and I'm, I haven't heard him specifically be giving input, but I would not be surprised if he's giving input as well, or just coaching up the running backs on different things, knowing all the calls and stuff. He is a valuable member of the team still, even if he is not uh, contributing on the field. Um, And then we had Devin want to know, should OJ lead the team out uh, of the tunnel since he lives in Vegas?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, why That's not? That's a great idea. That's a great <laughs> idea.
1: Uh, we're, we're probably not gonna have that happen. So I don't know that anyone will lead the team out um, in a at a neutral site. And then we had two more questions. Gate Call want to know if Pac-12 teams were Vegas hotels, who would they be? You know, you, you look at the top end, USC is gonna be your Bellagio, you know, one of your top end ones. That's what all that really matters. You know, who's gonna be the Excalibur? Who's the rundown Disneyland? What do you think, Chris? Cal? Colorado. Colorado's good because, you know, they could still become good. You saw what they did a a few years back um, with Mel Tucker. The Excalibur could maybe be good. You know, one of the rundown old downtown, that's probably Cal right now. And the last question comes from – where are we at here? We have Samuel. One more fun when he said, if you could switch places with anyone in the world for one week, who would you switch places with, Chris?
0: That's a big question that I would have to think about. I wouldn't want to be an athlete in a critical moment. You know, I wouldn't (laughs) want to be a football player at this time because that's a lot. I would want to be, I probably want to be an actor that just got done filming a big movie because the bank account's full and they're probably going on a big vacation. So I get to get be them for a week. Uh, So maybe like, maybe I'll just flip flop Chris's and be, flip with Chris Hemsworth. I believe he just wrapped up a movie. So uh, I think that's my answer.
1: Interesting choice. You could go with Caleb Williams starting Saturday. That could be a really interesting week for him, you know, as he
0: goes through oh, the whole process. Starting Saturday. Starting yeah, Saturday. Starting Saturday
1: after the Pac-12 championship game is over. That'll be a very interesting week for him. And, you know, could be a, it would be a very unique week to be a part of, I would think. Uh, but my answer – has you know, I've been asked uh, if I can switch places with one athlete before, who would it be? And I've always said Justin Verlander. Uh, he's married mm. to Kate Upton and he throws a hundred mile an hour fastball. And he just won the Cy young for the World Series champion. So I would have taken some of that. So I'll take that for a week.
0: Any true USC fan would have chosen Cam Rising, so then they would monstar his talent and oh, then, or,
1: interesting. or interesting.
0: JJ- or J.J. McCarthy for the Michigan quarterback. Throw them off their game so USC can bump up a spot possibly in the college football playoff and avoid Georgia in the
1: 1-4. Interesting. That's a, that's an interesting way to look at it. But, hey, everyone has their own perspective of it, and uh, that's why we love all the questions. Thank you guys so much for sending in your questions, whether it be on Twitter, DMs, emails, all that type of stuff. We really appreciate it. This podcast has run really long. Crystal has to pack. I've still got to do a bunch of charting, and then I've got to pack eventually and catch a flight to go to Vegas because USC is number four in the nation right now in the college football playoff ranking, and they are going to Las Vegas to play in the Pac-12 championship against the Utah Utes, the team that defeated them this season, their only loss of the year. So a shot at redemption and a shot at making the college football playoff One year and five days, I think it is, past Lincoln Riley being officially hired by USC to come in and coach a team that was 4-8, and going nowhere. It has been a remarkable turnaround. We'll see if USC can complete the journey of the regular season slash uh, uh, conference championship on Friday. Chris, any final thoughts before we wrap her up?
0: I got nothing. I'm excited to see you in Vegas. I hope you, if you're listening to this podcast, you can make it out to the MGM Park for a meetup. It should be fun. should be a lot of people. I know people were saying the last one in Vegas was not very good. Not a lot of people show up, but I expect a very packed USC contingent to come out to this meetup and for the Allegiant Stadium in general. So I think it's going to be a good time and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, although it will and might show up in my ghost notes.
1: It might show up in the ghost notes. And then once again, take a photo with us, post it on your 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 social media accounts so that we can see the face and get the name so we know the accounts and, and connect those two. Um, I really appreciate all you guys for be listening, for taking the time to to join us, and for all the, the support and uh, um, love that you guys have shown us throughout the season. We're really excited to cover this game and to, to see where USC is at now under Lincoln Riley and the staff that he has put together. So we'll see what USC can do on Friday. We'll see what Caleb Williams has in store for the Utes and if the Trojans can stop Dalton Kincaid. All that stuff we'll find out on Friday, and then we'll have plenty more content after the Pac-12 championship on uscfootball.com. Make sure you're subscribed. Make sure you like, share, do all those things with the podcast as well. We appreciate you guys and we look forward to to having you listen to the next podcast. Thanks so much. Peace.